Selena, Cassie and Cole are having sex. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Was <laughs> you the one that said that the show needs like fifteen percent more kissing? Was that you? That yes. Me. And yes, I stand by it. I think <laughs> that this like there's no reason not to just throw a little bit more in there. Like you saw this episode; it was such a good scene. <laughs> Amazing cinematography, you know, excellent acting, the writing. Was it? Was it the cinematography? Was I'm it the kidding. cinematography that you were really focusing on? Welcome back to Word of the Witnesses, our 12 Monkeys Rewatch podcast. Let's talk about what rewatch means. It means to watch again or something of that nature. Anyways, we've seen the whole series and you should have too. Please don't jump in the middle of season four if you don't know absolutely everything that's going on because we are going to spoil it and you don't deserve that. It's weird how that changes every time. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I'm Beep and I'm in Atlanta right now um, and most of the time. And I am joined, as always, by the lovely Cece. Hey, guys. I'm recording from Washington, D.C., and you can find me on Twitter at A capital check. And Selena is back, who is apparently our Agent Gale and Shaw uh, expert by <laughs> yes! accident, but also perhaps by fate. Mm, <laughs> <perhaps>. <laughs> Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Of course. Where are you and where can people find you? Where am I? Far away in time and space. (laughs) Actually, I am far away in time and space. Yeah, you really are. (laughs) I'm ahead of you. I'm in the future Um, in (laughs) Copenhagen in Denmark. Um, I'm so glad to have you back. Yay, I'm so glad to be back. Yeah. What an episode. Oh my gosh, you guys. Not to jump ahead. I was so excited. I I forgot what episode this was until the first scene. And I was like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) There's a method to the madness of who we asked to come on when. (laughs) And you, I I don't know how you're feeling now, but I feel like sometimes you're my friend that will teeter on the edge of the red forest (laughs) and this is a good one to talk about it with um and it is perfect that you talked about nature with us in season three and this is like the bookend in some ways to that episode um for both shaw and agent gale um but before we dive in um beep we have a really exciting announcement about our next episode Yes. Uh, so uh, the next one's Diglaka, and of course, ah! <laughs> there was like a line for that and a fight over who wanted to do it. But we had to concede to allow Terry Metalis and Sean Tretta. <laughs> oh, that's it was cheating. a real toss up. <laughs> no, these awesome guys um, offered to come back for that one, and we're just so thrilled because they've got some behind the scenes stuff and and thoughts about that episode. So that. That one we're just super excited to hear about because it's such a an integral yet so there's so many random things going on there and it's such a fun one. So we're we're excited about that. Yeah, I believe they co-wrote it and I believe they were both on set. So they will be here to entertain us. Um, I'm very excited. Um, Before we jump in, anything you guys are watching right now that you love, just since we're now taking this podcast into 2020? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, yes. I have I I've been in such a drought with entertainment uh recently. I just I haven't been able to watch anything. 
but I did recently, I was sick recently, so I commiserate with you, uh, Beep, and I started rewatching Heart of Dixie. <laughs> and if you knew two shows that go together in this world, it's 12 Monkeys and Heart of Dixie. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, but seriously, I'm so like, I'm so stoked because the show is just like candy floss for the soul. Like, I don't even know. It's just, it's pure delight and it's not even like that boring, which is rare, I find in a show. So, so like, if you need something nice then actually heart of dixie is is a good option it's funny you're watching it sick because i would say it's like a bowl of chicken noodle soup that's also good <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. For- <laughs> hearty yes yeah. and warm and homely yeah that's exactly what it is how about you beat i'm well i'm the same way and it's interesting that i feel like this has happened to so many of us who are you know kind of came from the some of the same fandoms and have mm. like became close over the over the yelling about that stuff like i'm just <laughs> so 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 over like the edgelord nonsense of the past couple years yeah that i have found it very very difficult to invest my time in anything especially a new series i'm like someone tell me when it's over where it's going if i should even bother like that's how bad endings have been Mm. um if it's if i am even like a hint of concept over character i'm like no i i don't have time for this and i just exactly yeah and it's amazing the sins of a plot I will forgive if mm-hmm. you come mm-hmm. back to your characters. Exactly, yeah. Absolutely. Just look at Buffy, like we were just talking about. Like, there's some ridiculous stuff on that show. <laughs> yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Um, yeah, but so- you kind of stick with it because, yeah. you know, they, they gain your trust. They, are, they earn it. And then even though there's some missteps, like the mm. overall narrative and the overall, the like characters. there's trust there, yeah. you know? Um, so right now, though, I mean, I'm really stoked about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. coming back over the summer, even though mm. I'm really, really worried about it because the episode titles got released this week. <laughs> uh, so I'm super stressed about that. Um, the only thing that I've been watching live right now is Legends of Tomorrow. And I I can't even believe like that I'm watching it. And it took so long for people to get me to watch it. But it's just like... The most freaking nonsensical bit of just wild crazy that I have ever seen. But I love it because they know it and they just embrace it. And it's like complete and utter nonsense. But it's complete and utter nonsense focused 100% on characters. So I'm just like, cool, let's go for this ride. (laughs) And I was saying earlier, like, there's always the wildest stuff that happens. Like, they're doing time travel. And then, of course, it, like, goes into magic. So, like... One minute there's a unicorn and then there's a dragon. But I said earlier that I still think the most ridiculous thing and unbelievable thing they've ever done is at one point they had a couple putting together a wardrobe from Ikea and they did it in less than an hour with only one fight. <laughs> and I'm just convinced that's the most unrealistic thing this show has ever done. <laughs> That usually ends with me sitting in the middle of a room crying. <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> definitely in over an hour. <laughs> that's exactly what I said to my friend. And she's like, I feel like it would be like a minimum of three fights. And I was like, yes, minimum three fights. Because of that, it takes at least half a day. By the end of it, someone is sitting alone, finishing it by themselves. And the other person is ordering food because they are not talking to each other. And then by the end of it all, you finally make up over the meal that's happening in front of the finished product. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So, yeah, an hour in one fight, I'm not buying it. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, no, but I mean, that I that's exactly how we felt over the holidays when we just kind of, like, you know, consumed The Witcher and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and they all had great characters and I didn't care when stuff didn't make sense or was crazy. Um, but we did get back to, like, we got to January and we got back to, like, quote unquote, serious television watching. And we watched Fleabag and Succession and season four of The Expanse. And they were all, you know, like exceptional and definitely the best TV in 2019, all of that. But I did have like, as you are, as I hear both of you guys kind of being like, oh, I just haven't watched anything that's inspired. I have a recommendation that I'm going to try really hard not to sound what does Amy say when she talks about the leftovers? A pretentious asshole. Because, you know, when you watch something that is so profound, like you just can't stop thinking about it. Like Heart of Dixie? <laughs> Not as much as Heart of Dixie. <laughs> that's, that's exactly <laughs> what she <laughs> meant. <laughs> well, it's just, you know, when you watch something that just feels like a thunderbolt and it, it doesn't come around all that often. And this actually isn't television. Um, last weekend, I saw Town, which is um, the musical on Broadway that just won the Tony for Best New Musical. And it is uh, – actually, I happened to watch the episode we're talking about today after on the train on the way up to New York and then went to go see this show. And they actually have a theme in common. Um, and – it is the retelling of the myth of Orpheus, and it is based on this um, kind of, I guess, concept indie folk album by Anais Mitchell. And then kind of over 13 years, she wrote this workshop, uh, kind of workshopped the album into a musical in various iterations. And it is like, it was like weeping by the end of it. It was like one of those, the only other experience I've had seeing something so new that just kind of, even though you knew exactly what was coming and you knew the end of the story, it, it tells it in such a different way is Hamilton. That's really the only kind of recent comparison I have to it. And you can listen to the album, the Broadway recording, the cast on YouTube, um, or you can listen to the folk album that it's based on by Anais Mitchell, same name, Hadestown. It is beautiful. And it is about, um, in some ways, like I was kind of thinking how Shaw and Cassie are kind of like Orpheus in this episode, right? All they're contemplating death and wanting to bring their loved one back from the dead. Um, but also it's just about, there's a line in it that is to the world we dream about and the one we live in now that just kind of gave me chills mm. and about stories and art and how they help us sort of think about the way we want the world to be, um, maybe often rather than it is. Um, and it's really beautiful. So that's my sort of random theater slash music recommendation. But I think anybody that's sort of, if you love Greek myths, if you love sort of, it's written by a woman, I think it's the only fourth musical ever on Broadway to be solely credited to a woman. Um, and you can wow. tell sort of in the agency she gives, the main characters are Persephone, Hades, Orpheus, Hermes, and... Um, Eurydices. So go listen to Hades Town, and it's going to be a national tour in the US. So if it comes to your city, try and go see it. I actually just read, oh, sorry, I know we have 12 monkeys to talk about. I just yeah. read a uh, Cirque 
Is that how you say it? Cer- oh, Circe. Cer- Circe, yeah. Oh, um, that's on my nightstand. By, by Madeline Miller. It's so good. It's really good. It's um. I think you have to just get a bit into it. It's one of those that it's a bit slow to start, but it's one of the best books I've read in a long time. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's something about why these stories have lasted for as long as they have, right? And when when a writer, whether it's through that book, which a lot of friends have recommended to me, or this play, when you can take a story, there's a reason, there's something about it that we kind of hold on to. And that's kind of the point of the musical. Like, why do we tell these stories over and over? Um, but when you can, uh, when someone's so brilliant that they can kind of make it make you feel like it's relevant to your life, even though a story is thousands of years old. It's just really, that's on my nightstand. So I'm going to read that next, Lena. Um, All right. So today we're talking about 12 Monkeys, um, and it's episode 405, After. It was written by Oliver Grigsby, who also wrote um, Fatherland in season two, which was, um, we will see glimpses of what was changed um, in Fatherland, the 1961 East Berlin episode with Agent Gale. And it was directed by, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Sherry Folkson. Um, yay, female director. She's also directed episodes of American Horror Story and Doctor Who. Um, before we jump into sort of the various oops loops, um, I wanted to talk about sort of some big picture themes. And the first one that kind of, I don't know, at least for me, smacks me in the face is the title of this episode, After. And I was curious if you guys had sort of any, any thoughts about different, different meanings that the title of the episode may have. Well, I, it's so interesting. Like, I, I think you noted somewhere in, in the doc that it's something that Cassie says in the episode itself, this concept of like what happens after, you know, mm-hmm. the whole thing is about like once upon a time, blah, blah, blah. It's the beginning of the story. It's the end of the story. It's an interesting concept, I think, in, in stories in general is that what happens after the end, right? It's the end is this final thing, but there is no forever after that. There's an ending, you know, and and it's I, I I don't know it's it's obviously it's a hard concept to talk about, and that's why there's so many stories about it. But when in a in a show like this where there is no ending, the after like I think for Cole the after is death, you know, the after is some some final finish line for all of this. And Cassie is the one who's kind of beginning to think about well, are we gonna get our after and how long is that after going to be because that has to end as well you know so I think it's it's just it's really a cool thing to put into our minds at the stage in the story where I think we like Cassie are beginning to think like oh crap the end is coming mm-hmm. is there going to be an after and is that after ever going to be good enough because it's not going to be forever right yeah and it's really there are there's so many, so many layers to this episode <laughs> on rewatch now that we know everything that happens. But one of them is this episode for both of them is really previewing sort of the different, their different headspace. Like Cole is very focused on the mission, right? Even when he, it, it's his life or getting the weapon, the choice is the mission and the weapon. And Cassie is from the beginning of the episode, really starting to think about, you know, I think all of the loss has, is taking a toll. And it's sort of like, what is this all for? Like for me? And I mean, the episode really does refocus it as much 
you know, we've been like hurtling towards like, how do we fix this? And this episode really sort of takes a pause and refocuses on like, what's going to be the personal cost at the end to the characters? Because this found family that we love, you know, in a reset, they're not all the same ages, like they're not all together, right? Like, it's not just Cassie and Cole. So, yeah. I think of Cole specifically, though, I mean, looking at his arc across the whole series, like, there's never been an after for him. That's not something he's even had to think about and and doesn't think about. Um, I consider the conversation that Future Asshole had with him, you know, when he, he specifically said there's, there's a beginning and an end to all this, and all you and I are ever going to have is what's in between. Right. Yeah, he's and he's yeah, that's a really good even though he doesn't quite know what that means yet. Um, On the other hand, you know, it's an episode entitled after that gives us images of the after of this story. (laughs) You know, like it like, now when you whenever Cole has sort of that vision, and for for a hot second in the beginning of the series finale, we think it was just, you know, we have the fake out that it's the proposal. But Cassie's asking the question at the end of the episode, what happens after? And they actually gave us glimpses of, it's not really, you know, it's not an afterlife in sort of the eternal life, religious way, like concept, even though the way they film it maybe suggests that it is, you know, because it's kind of bathed in this golden light. Oh, it's, it's like so much fodder for the um, for the red forest theory. <laughs> Do you Ooh. think so? <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we may have a debate on this one. Um, but, you know, they're actually like Cassie's like, what happens after? And Cole is like, well, I had an image. And now you watch and you're like, they freaking told us what the after was. There's just no way we could have deciphered it, you know, because we didn't have enough information. Um, And it's interesting because that after is of human making, right? It's something that Jones does. Um, Selena, did you have any thoughts sort of, I mean, the other sort of more, the other sort of way that it's exploring after is after death and everything that Shaw, you know, is kind of if his opening argument was in nature, um, the last time you were on, this is his big closing argument to Cassie. And it's persuasive, right? Like why he's doing all of this is to undo death. Mm-hmm. Well, I think like as it as it kind of comes back to after, I think what's interesting, obviously, about Shaw's solution or his, his ideal um, state is that there is no after there's no before there's no there's only now like that's the whole point there's only now <laughs> right um and and that's just, it's it's what he's saying is basically he doesn't have to live in a world where he is after his wife you know the events that he's sort of in the the best moments of his life he isn't living in a state of after he is living in a state of now in like relation to those to those moments right and i think that's kind of an interesting angle of of the title as well is that well if if we want to believe that the ultimate that the red forest is evil and that the ultimate happy ending is a now that that changes and eventually ends then we're also saying that we we're always living in an after after something after something has ended um but what Shaw is saying, obviously, is that he he refuses that. He rejects that. And Cassie does, too, because she doesn't want an after. She doesn't, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, it does. And it's interesting, you know, the closing words of the show are happily ever now and and sort of getting at that idea of what Beep mentioned about future assholes words, right? There's a beginning and an end. All we have is in between. So don't focus on what comes after. You have to live, you know, not to sound trite, but like you have to live in the now. Mm. Um, and yeah, so the it, question is, is the na- is now supposed to last forever? Right, exactly. Right? Yeah, because now yeah. is not going to be now. You can live in the now, but the now is going to get away from you anyway. Right. I mean, in the other, I mean, it's funny because, and I think it part of it was, you know, I just saw this play that was about Orpheus. And in that play, you're absolutely cheering for the protagonist to try, you know, he literally going to the afterlife, going to the underworld and trying to undo death. And in this episode, there's so many different characters that are in one way or another trying to undo death, right? You have Shaw trying to do it with the Red Forest, perhaps persuading per- persuading Cassie enough that regardless of what, what you think happens at the end of the series, she's going to strongly consider it. Um, but you also have Cassie trying to save Cole, right? Like trying to prevent death, having to kind of it's almost like the inverse of a Red Forest moment and that she has to kind of keep reliving that moment over and over, right? Like she has to like listen to herself um, and she's trying to undo it. You have Gale who undoes his death, right? Because he's given new information and he makes a change and undoes death. And so like one way or another, you have all of these different characters that are battling something that is central to the human existence, right? Like there's a reason why we have stories mm. that go back thousands of years about trying to undo our mortality because it's, you know, when you think about once upon a time and happily ever after and how that suggests in and of itself as Shaw's words at the beginning of the episode an end, um, whether it's falling in love and then it ends up not working out or or death, or what, it's always going to end, right? Like the uh, falling in love with someone one way or another, if you look at it sort of from like Shaw's perspective, will always end in heartbreak for one reason or another, right? Like it's this act of hopefulness in the now, knowing that someday it will cause heartache for whatever reason. And it's, he's, I, you know, they, they, I think it's fascinating that they have this sort of turn in the story in this episode where these are the bad guys. Like, this is who we've been cheering against the whole time. And he makes a pretty compelling argument. I was actually going to say that one thing that I think about this show that, again, ties into the idea of the end and the Red Forest and all that stuff is that, you know, for a show that that is so occupied with presenting a final end as a good thing as opposed to striving for to kind of battle death and kind of win win the eternal now for its characters to live in I think it is kind of mm, Terry don't listen but (laughs) (laughs) taking a little bit of an easy way out that they never actually confront the viewers with the final end like I think that Gale is kind of a perfect example of this he was a cost you know someone that we and the characters got really invested in he made a choice he had his death then he came back and he got to undo death you know in a way but he didn't because he will die you know he'll just get older and then he'll die later and we know that 
intellectually, but we don't get to feel it. So all we get to feel with Gale is, oh, he he lived, he survived, he's he's alive now. And I think that's kind of like with the the very end of the show where that's what we get. You know, Jones had her death, she died, she came back, she's alive now. You know, Hannah died, she came back, she's alive now. Cole died, he came back. You know, all of them, even even Adler, <laughs> like all of them are back and get to live in there now. Mm-hmm. When and 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 whether or not that's like the red forest or not for us for the audience we kind of get the best of of both worlds because we can choose to say no no it's not the red forest they're fine they chose life blah 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 but we don't we never get confronted with the moment when like the moment that Cassie is so afraid of you know, the thing that motivates her to fight for the Red Forest, that she knows that as many nows as she can kind of claw back for them, eventually they will run out, if that makes sense. So I think it's one of those things that I've thought a lot about since I finished watching the show is that it's, I understand, I think, the need for the the optimism, but I also think that the idea of the Red Forest as Shaw sees it as this negative thing and the good ending being the one in which they're not in the red forest it does kind of hinge on the fact that we kind of all conveniently ignore that eventually like it will be the end yeah i mean i get what yeah so i get what you're saying i mean with respect to gail one of the reasons why i love that we find out that gail was able to change something in this episode is because the last couple episodes have been hammering home, they're stuck in a loop. Like, that's the whole problem. So the fact that he is able, you know, even if he is still in a certain kind of loop, I think the last time you were on, we were talking about how with time travel shows and free will and not being able to make a change, it can get really kind of, you're like, will anything matter? Um, And so the fact that he is able to, you know, say fate my ass and change things to me was kind of like a sign of hope that I needed, Mm -hmm. you know, that like maybe some things that they're doing will actually make a difference. But if they change something, like unless he was always alive, right? no, that, we no, we we okay. actually did get. Well, um, I All think right. the last time Terry Metalis was on, he confirmed that there was a change. Okay, well um, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm yeah. Because the first time the, the first time the bullets went through him. Okay, good. In season two. Great. Yeah, I guess if you go back and watch Fatherland, the bullets go through. Yeah, and this um, time they don't. Yeah, but the, you know what? This to harken back to season two, it makes me think of the conversation that Jennifer was having with Cassie when Cassie had been, you know, overtaken. Her mind had been overtaken by the witness about, like, in her perspective on, you know, I think death is everything. Like, death is what makes us human, and. No, but I think my, my point is just that it's because we always we get those ideas, but we never actually have to feel it in the yeah. show. Like that that was just the point I was trying to make is that it's without the bad side, like we kind of get we don't we get the the best. Yeah. You know, but we don't get to like that that fear that Cassie has in this episode about being so afraid of, of what comes after you know, after, after, after. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, yeah. Well, because we're all just assuming they live to like a ripe old age and then they're gone and that's cute. Yeah, yeah <laughs> we don't have to think about that part. But I think that's so interesting is that with Shaw, the reason that he's 
he wants to be in the red forest it's not necessarily just to to live in those happy moments but it's because he's one of those characters that's actually living in in the after yeah. you know living in the after of the happiness and so he's like well you know what like screw this like i had my happy moments and some people who are still living in their happy moments don't get to tell me that it's enough yeah. right you know yeah. what i mean yeah, no, I mean, the show definitely let us kind of wallow in death, certainly with Ramsey and certainly with Deacon. You're right that we do get that sort of reset. And uh, personally, I love that it doesn't, that everyone, including the audience, is rewarded after sort of a, oof, <laughs> particularly at the end oh, of yeah, this season with sure. Hannah. Yeah, but, yeah. but uh, Selena, I do agree with you. And this is, I think that... Often in discussions about the show, the red forest and why you would want it is given sort of a backhand. And I've, <laughs> I was watching this episode and, you know, I'm, I'm in my forties. I have a lot of friends that are, you know, so it, it, I've, I've reached the point in life where when you're getting news from friends, a lot of it is not good. Um, and losing siblings, spouses, parents. And when you talk to someone that's kind of dealing with that really like raw grief and loss um, that many of us, if we're lucky, have not had to deal with yet. If you were to like, if you were to ask them, what would you do to bring that person back? I don't know if everybody would say no to the Red Forest. And in it, mm -hmm. in we don't really. Um, we don't, I feel like none of us really want to admit that because we can't have it. So it feels good to say, no, you know, we're human and death is what makes it all matter because that's what we're stuck with. <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. we're not faced with the choice that Cassie has. Like, would you really choose your loved one to die? Would you really choose that? Yeah, I think I it's circumstantial, even from person to person, like from time to time. You know what I mean? Would she say that now versus what is she going to say five years from now versus what would she have said 10 years ago? Or what would she say when she lost her mother? But now it's been many, many years after that. What would she do? You know what I mean? Like it's it's all kind of like what place you are in life and for the different person. I did just want to say that the one thing that I maybe might have liked, which was just like a small thing at some point during the show is just to see someone die. And I, Ramsey, maybe-ish, but to see someone die when they're old, you know, in under, I mean, it's never going to be good circumstances. You're always going to leave someone behind. You're always going to be like, oh, I wish, blah, blah, blah. But to have some kind of final ending that kind of let death be death, without like not to to sort of have that that sugar sweet kind of like oh look death is beautiful and la 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 but just to kind of acknowledge that it's every if if we're saying they didn't end up in the red forest it's a reality that our characters will have to deal with eventually but it doesn't have to be a big traumatic horrific um soul crushing thing it also doesn't have to be something that we just close our, our eyes to and pretend is far off in the future and we don't have to think about it. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I was missing, and maybe Gail could have been used for that, you know, to, to sort of acknowledge I think in some ways real. we get that with Ethan. Mm, yeah. How so? 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, so let's assume, and I think there's been comments made, you know, about how, well, they'll have him one day, but it's like, no, somebody actually. It's a different person, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, somebody gave me, yes, somebody gave me a very specific and biological reason why Ethan can never exist again. And I was like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't, I don't want to get into, but if people think about it enough, they can figure it out. And I was like, wow, maybe Ethan is a true cost and i didn't yeah. think about it that yeah, way yeah cole already shot that shot let's just oh, make man. it simple that way <laughs> unless, unless and, I, and I thought butt words. sex i thought keeping it to <laughs> butt sex was going to be as low as we went <laughs> but i get i totally get what you're saying though you get to the end and it's all just kind of like neatly wrapped up and the the question is in the mystery of like are we is this the good way or the bad way or depending on how you look at it but like there's no one that is just like completely lost in the mix. Like mm-hmm. I really, really did expect for Cole to be gone and I had made peace with that. Yeah. On the other hand, the final image, and I know that it's open to interpretation, but the words happily ever now, as you see a leaf turning yeah. red, it's very is in and of itself suggesting the end. Like, they're mm. happy right now, but that is just right now. All of those characters in those final images, if you if you believe that it's a reset, that's one moment of happiness. But, you know, as Shaw suggests, uh, death will come for all of us, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, I <laughs> yeah. mean, who knows? Maybe Cole then turned around, on, went back on the road and got, like, hit by a car. I don't know. Right. Like, <laughs> the actual final image, like a meteor hurtling to <laughs> What if he just walked inside and like the house blew up? Oh my god, it'd be so amazing. (laughs) No, it wouldn't. (laughs) No, it wouldn't. But 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 I mean, part of but part of like it's the last image we can hold on to, almost in our in a perverse way. Audience read forest that those that we get to see those characters happy, Mm -hmm. even though the end in and of itself, the final words and the final images are like this will won't last so you have to make it count you yep. have to savor it now and, but we as an you're like we as an audience we're in our red forest moment because we can just keep watching that ending where they're all yeah, happy like every tv show <laughs> is a red forest for its audience right mm. right <laughs> well, yeah, in a lot of ways guys. it's more of a comment on uh on real life rather than the fiction it's representing mm. right and you know so much of a story when people focus on the ending and happily ever after. I mean, if you think about uh, sort of a reaction when you reopen a story, right? Like, for example, Star Wars, and you reopen a story, and maybe maybe life wasn't so great for Han, Leia, and Luke after Return of the Jedi. Then people get upset, you know what I mean? Because it's like messing with a pat, but they lived happily ever after, and we want to like hold on to that like pat ending. You know? Yeah, we have these idealized versions. And I know, um, you know, because a lot of times at the end of a story, that's when like, these people get together or this relationship starts. And I- I'm not going to rag on it because there are great times. But Cece, as someone you you know, as someone who's been in a relationship for a long time, like, happily ever after my ass, like, <laughs> that's, it's not how that works. You know what I mean? It's not just like this, like stylized beauty of every single moment of every single day. Like, we just like, look at it as as if they're never going to have problems again and that's just not how it works 
Right. And it's so rare that um, at least fiction on television explores that, you know. Um, but yeah, it is the once upon a time and happily ever after. It's so funny. How often do we read that and say that? And then, you know, the opening monologue of this episode really made me think about it kind of like in a new way. Um, sort of both of those. Um, so yeah. we're going to have a lot. It sounds like we're going to have a lot to dig into when we get to Shaw. Um, <laughs> the other sort of big picture um, idea before we go scene to scene is this idea of the oops loop. Um, if Lullaby is the perfect Groundhog Day episode. This is, for me at least, this episode is like, I am in awe of the writing of it. Um, I love, love, like, writing stories like this. It is my one of my absolute favorite tropes. Like, the whole, ah, from the moment that that woman in the hotel was like, oh, where's my coat, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yes! <laughs> because I knew, and it's like, you look at all the little stupid clues, and the more loops there are, and the more per perspectives there are, the better. I love it. Yes, it is like, um, like peeling an onion. Every time I watch this episode, I dis I, I watched it, for a second time, like in the last week today, and I discovered like four new things I had never noticed before. Um, mm -hmm. And just within the episode of The Loop, not to mention that you need to watch Deglaka to understand certain aspects of what's going on with the seller, um, that it is connecting to Fatherland, it's connecting to nature, it connects to the series finale. All of those episodes add context and meaning to what's going on in addition to like bringing it back to the idea of after just trying to figure out what's happening when what was before mm -hmm. and after in the loop like in the oops but, loop but you, you know, know? it's so great like about this episode in so many ways and it's why the show is is so amazing is because this episode is the whole show this this episode, like the, the that thing with the woman with the coat, is like, yes, you go back to the pilot, you see someone walking past, you don't know until season three that it's blah, blah, blah. You know, mm -hmm. like that's kind of, and people keep going back and going back and going back and all those layers play into what you've been watching from the very beginning. Ah, it's so brilliant. It's one of my favorite things. Um, You're right. It is. It's like a great, if you could say, I mean, if you could just have be like, this episode explains what, what rewatching the entire series is like. Yeah, that's such a good point. <laughs> um, and also, you know, it's funny because Gail tends to be in these episodes where they have planted the very clue that they're after. Um, because like in a hundred years, when they first met him in the forties, he was the one that wrote down on the photograph where to go to, um, in fatherland, it's Cassie and Ramsey mentioning, um, the clue that ends up in the FBI or CIA report, which is why they end up there. And obviously that's what happens in this episode. So you've got the loop as to why they're there in the first place. And then you've got kind of the different rounds of people going back on the same day trying to fix the problem. Um, and, and you have to pay attention to like, you know, they're very, just like Lullaby gave us those timestamps of um, the gun salute and the birds and playing taps to signify that the day was beginning again. In this episode, it's like, 
the lamp falling, um, the room service, um, plate cover falling, the stolen coat that are like our timestamps so that we can like orient ourselves. Wait, okay, so this happened when? Um, so they're kind of like these auditory clues to like orient you. This is where I am in this day. Um, I just, I am in awe of the writing of this episode. Um, the other, the other fun thing that, um, Joe mentioned, who's been on a bunch, um, Maybe Geek Again Joe, and she is a website, um, like she's an expert in coding, is that in <laughs> She's a co- website. <laughs> she's a website. I don't know. I was an English major. She does, she makes websites. Um, she said in coding, kind of a slang, although you wouldn't necessarily call it that, an oops loop is a loop in coding that ends up breaking everything, which is very interesting considering what the weapon actually is, the code to break the loop. And I don't know if that was intentional or not, but I just thought that was kind of a fun layer of meaning like to an oops loop. Once again, like they're not, they're just going back to do what was already happened. Like they never learn. <laughs> it's like a constant. <laughs> I know that's the point of the show, but it's just like a constant sort of frustration for me. And at the end, when they're like, we're going to go back even sooner. And you're like, no, you're not. Because then you would never have been here if you actually managed to change it. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> it's both your favorite trope. It's also funny that Cassie even says that in this one. She's like, for all you know, like, we're the ones who shot them. Like, we're just going to go in there and make it happen. (laughs) Cassie's sarcasm in this episode is glorious. (laughs) She's like full on, like, couldn't help but notice the dead guys, right? Like, present asshole. Like, (laughs) her, she is on fire in this episode. Um, All right. So the episode opens with this sort of Shaw's, the origin story of his Red Forest faith. There are a couple things I noticed about it that I hadn't picked up on before. Um, and I, and this will sound crazy because I, how many times I've watched this show? Maybe I'm just not that observant. Um, I missed that he was a minister and he drops his collar when his wife dies on the ground. So when, I missed that too. Yeah. So later on when he says, I lost my faith and there's a lot of religious, um, and in particular, uh, Christian and uh, kind of communion-like um, ritual to what, the way he gives them the poison. Um, I And thinking back to the episode Nature, where we talked about how it was kind of like a tent revival, um, like a, a version of sort of Protestant worship services in the United States, kind of in the American West, um, that – that makes so much sense that he was sort of the salesman um, for this faith because he was a minister. So like he drops, I, I, I'm pretty sure it's a collar as in like a minister's collar. It's like a white uh, sort of rectangular piece of fabric. And that also, the other thing I noticed was that his wife gave him the black hat. And I never noticed that the pallid man picks up that hat in the alley and that is the hat he has always worn in the series. Oh, I did notice that. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> I never like I knew like that it was kind of the same imagery, but I did I had never put that together that like the wife that is the inspiration for the Red Forest gave that hat to Shaw. Um 
And and Tall Man's over there already looking creepy. And it's not <laughs> even his appearance. It's like his mannerisms. Yeah. He's... Like, it's just so deliberate. And I'm like, ee, go away. Yeah. Pallid young man. I feel really badly, but I'm sure it was on purpose. But he really gives me the EBGBs in this episode. <laughs> he he's does. such a, like, video game villain, isn't he? Like, he comes in there with this little, like whistle tune and like his little hat and uh yeah um that brings us to selena cassie and cole are having sex <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> <Du, du, du. laughs> was the one that said that the show needs like 15 percent more kissing was that you yes. <laughs> and yes i stand by it i think <laughs> That this, like, there's no reason not to just throw a little bit more in there. Like, you saw this episode. It was such a good scene. <laughs> Amazing cinematography, you know, excellent acting, the writing. Was it, was it, the, cinemato- was it the cinematography that you were really focusing on? Me, uh, me too. I really love those oh blues my gosh. and grays. No, but I mean, just that, I mean, may, you, you could argue that that scene had such a big impact because we hadn't seen a lot of it. Um, it was good though that it was there because I think that like when I was DMing with Cece in my in my frustration <laughs> um, about this is that they a lot of times I you know it is a, a problem with with shows like this is that they don't want to fall into the sort of like make out trap and having their leads kind of be all over each other so they tend to push them a little too far apart to make the point like it's not about romance and mm-hmm. I kind of think I, that, that it just annoys me you know and like the thing about 12 monkeys is that they do the romance so well there's absolutely no reason to not have them just be a little bit more intimate with each other than they've been even though a lot of times like there are very good individual reasons within the episodes why they don't have time for that right now but i do think that just a scene like this just did so much to show the intimacy between them and the closeness between them the fact that there was a them that was bigger than just a plot related they needed to get together to have Ethan reason and like just like a casual intimacy that I think if again 15% more of it throughout the show would have been perfect but it is very close (laughs) to being perfect and I think that this scene just also just just to to show very literally how closely Cassie is clinging to Cole and how sort of like or they're clinging to each other even, like how desperate they both are for being close to each other and sort of going into the aftermath of it, just showing the different kind of Cole is is happy to have what they have right now, fully expecting it to end. Whereas Cassie, you know, the more she has, the more she wants. And how those different kind of attitudes kind of feed into the conflict between them. I think it was just, it was just really well done. And, and it was just like a... A really sort of very very well executed scene. <laughs> it was like the the gaze to it yeah. was very intimate, yeah. rather than being uh, what's the right way to put it. It's not just sexual, mm-hmm. like it's intimate. So and different from the one in the in the house, which was like, wow, it's happening right now. Like very the Notebook esque, you know. Like this is mm-hmm. completely different. Like exactly, very very intimate, very close. Um, it had the exact effect of showing how close they'd come and, and how, as I said, like how much that affects both of them. 
Yeah. And I mean, you're right. It is key. Like they had to, I mean, there's a, there's a mission, there's a mission related reason why there's time for this now, right? Like they literally, Jennifer's looking for a needle in a haystack. They have nothing to do right now. Um, and it's been a little, like, you know, so much of season three was about saving their son and trauma and all sorts that, that it makes sense sort of story wise that this is a moment to breathe and sort of emotionally reconnect, but it is absolutely vital to landing sort of the emotional punch yes. at the end yeah. of the episode. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because yeah. otherwise, like, it would, I mean, not that we don't believe in the relationship between Cass and Cole and all that, because we want to believe in it, but it would be, it's almost, for me, on the edge of being like, are they just together because the story needs them to be together? Not, like, not a criticism of the acting or anything like that, just because the romance elements had been so scarce that mm-hmm. a moment like this, which just it was really good. I don't know how I would have felt about it if something like this hadn't been included before the end. You know, it really, really did a lot to sort of get you emotionally on board or even just like feel like they were emotionally on board. Yeah. Before we get to the end game. It's that, and then you also put that with sort of feeling like we get to be, we get to have a little fun with them in 1966 before, before the poison kicks in. Right, and that doesn't happen, that happens a little bit more frequently, but also very rarely. It's great to just see the two of them have right. a good time. It's like, like, mm-hmm. Yeah, because they have great chemistry, and yes. so like, basically I feel like masks and after mm-hmm. are our sort of two like casserole date nights <laughs> before say, things like, go to yeah, shit. Masks is the one that I'm always thinking about. Like what a wonderful moment. And I think I said this, not to repeat myself, I think I, I said this last time I was on as well, but but Cassie just so rarely gets to have fun. You know, like she mm-hmm. just so rarely gets to smile and remember that she's fighting for something that isn't just constantly staving off all the terrible things that are surrounding her all the time. Like there's a life to be fighting for. And and that isolation is obviously why she is tempted by the Red Forest. But it's just so nice to see that, yes, she is human. And yes, she has a human connection that is more than just a desperate clinging on to each other. It's actually based on real emotional, you know, compatibility. It's just, it's really nice. It's the little touches. No pun intended. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) It also, um, there's a great sort of like one of the things I picked up on sort of rewatching it is there's there's little plot Easter eggs with Cole saying, you know, Jones found my birth certificate. My why don't we go back there? My mother's name was Marion Woods. And the episode ends. (laughs) 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 But the episode ends with Jones sending Hannah away on sort of an undisclosed mission. And so you've got these kind of two hints, one at the beginning and one at the end, that you never would have put together, right? Like, I never would have, I didn't connect those two things at all. Um, Maybe, I mean, as much as we love that, the sort of intimacy of this scene, the best thing about it is Jennifer knocking on the door and saying, (laughs) Oh my God, the best line of the whole show. It really is. And, and you know it was going to be Jennifer's. Let's be real. 
<laughs> I, yeah, I mean, Deacon, not with those two. Deacon wasn't going to say that. So, <laughs> um, and Amanda Shul's face like, is deserves- so funny. Like, that's the oh best my God. part. Also, again, because it's great when Cassie gets to be like part of the fun, you know, like even peripherally, like there is yes. like, so. It's so funny how, like, oh, my God, I can just imagine, like, them pitching that line in the writing room or whenever, like, whoever came up with it. I think, like, the faces would have been the same. <laughs> it would have been like, I, love I want to believe that Amanda Schul didn't know it was coming. Like, even if it was scripted, like, I just want to believe that she didn't know that they were going to say it. Either that or she deserves an Emmy for that piece yeah. alone. Yeah. <laughs> Um, if we shift really quickly to Jennifer, um, the thing that I love about this episode and that Christopher Monthat mentioned last episode was trying to figure out how, how do you, how is Jennifer relevant? And it's something this character is struggling with, right? How is she relevant to the team? How can she contribute when she doesn't have access to her primary powers? And she sure proves worthy, I think, in this episode. Um, but you can see sort of like how desperate she is looking, like looking for something, trying to put this together. And she's having to do it sort of through her own sheer will and intellect because she's she doesn't have her powers right now. Um, I don't know, Beep, did you have any sort of thoughts about sort of where this falls like in her character arc? I love that she refers to herself as the artist formerly known as Primary. <laughs> <laughs> I love that she's listening to J.H. Bond. She's listening to herself. <laughs> she spent her whole life I listening to herself. Ask if that was her. That is so funny. Yeah, and it's a great setup, right, for the next episode <laughs> where she's going to have to, you know, step in as J.H. Bond. Um, and you have like I that I love her little it's a mystery MacGuffin song because it's like the show manages to walk this very fine line of being so self-aware, you know, that they're looking for a MacGuffin. But like, you know, Jennifer's the one that can say that because she would know that from like pop culture. Um, yeah, for sure. It's cool. I mean, I think it's just such a big part, though, of her overall loop, which has always been about finding her place in the world. So she used to be an outcast because she was crazy. And then as it turned out, her crazy was a superpower. And now she's not crazy. And like, what does it even mean for Jennifer not to be crazy? Even though she totally tells Gail that she is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, we'll get to it. But Gail and Jennifer are like the team up I never knew I needed. <laughs> Jennifer with anyone. And it's the team up you never knew you needed. That's like, true. She's such a great character to have in, in a cast like this. Yes. Can she please do crossovers? Like, I'll just put her on any show. <laughs> Um, so the, the, she asked to come along, Cole and Cassie are like, no. And there are two, I don't know what the right, the right terminology is for it, but there are two, like, if this were a record player, needle drop music cues in this episode that I love. And the first one is the beginning of the Love and Spoonfuls, Summer in the City. And um, and that's the song that kind of takes us to 1966, which was the number one song um, in the summer of 1966. And Cole and Cassie are literally, it's July 1966. Mm. They're going to the city in the summer. And I freaking love this montage of them in the 60s so much. I don't even know if I can like articulate it because it is so 
like fun and flirty and the costumes are amazing. And it's like, they did that sort of 1961, very kind of sophisticated Jackie O look um, for Cassie in Fatherland. But this is like mini skirts and go-go boots and like the swinging 60s. And Cole has on like those Michael Caine, like Alfie era glasses from 1966. And they, they have that little like flirty look when they get out of the elevator and i just love it so much <laughs> yeah no no i I so agree with you i think it's so good and again it just adds to the feeling that there's there's more depth to their relationship than just you know survival because they do they can appreciate is sharing experiences like this like it is nice when we get stuff like that yeah, it's fun. It's fun to dress up and like look over your partner yeah. and be like, damn, you look good. <laughs> and time travel. It's so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like Cassie's got like red, like they're red leather go-go boots with like white, li- it, they're amazing. Um, I wonder if they were like vintage because if you just focus on her boots, I would kill for those boots. Um I love, there's a lot of really fun sort of like historical details. There's a lot of fallout shelter posters around. Like this is Cold War tensions, perfect time. Kind of like the East Berlin episode that you would, perfect time for sort of a spy drama, right? That Jennifer will soon think that she finds herself in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love the sort of car scene and the sort of classic Cole just can't freaking sit in the car and is impatient and wants to go in head first. And Cassie's got the great bang, bang, loop, loop. Uh, turns out it was us that killed the Russians all along. And you're like, I can't believe they had her say that when that's exactly what's going to happen. Um, did you guys notice that? Co- that Wait, but is- it wasn't them. It was Gail and Jennifer. They don't know that. <laughs> I wonder if they ever know that. <laughs> right. I- yeah. They're probably just keeping like causality intact. And like, I, I, doubt that they ever like that Cole and Cassie ever know that Uh, well maybe when they're having a drink all at the end (laughs) (laughs) oh by the way that was us (laughs) I did not pick up I again maybe I'm just not that observant I did not pick up on the red car that Cole is admiring is Agent Gale's car that that's another oh. clue. Oh, I didn't pick up on that either. I didn't pick either. up on that either. No. That red car where he's like nice wheels. As Which is why he's already there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like a hit. You know, in addition to the lamp the sound of the lamp falling, which we know is Jennifer and the door not being able to be opened. Um, there, you know, uh, it's just fun to watch it thinking like Jennifer and Gail are literally next door right now. Um, or they're in the room. But um, that um, takes us to sort of, you know, they, they go in, they find the suitcase and all of that. They're back at the Emerson Hotel. What what do you guys all think about sort of this? I mean, it's logical um, and actually reminded me, Beep, of something that they did on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Cole thinks he is basically bulletproof because, like, I already met my future self, which means I survived this moment. So I should yep. be the one to meet him. Yeah, yep. and that is – Plot super, armor. It's super interesting, isn't it? Because it is kind of like that thing of, like, can you change stuff or can you not? Because mm-hmm. if he doesn't believe that he can change anything, then why is he even there? Mm-hmm. You know, like it right? Why of, can he not change that? But mm-hmm. he can change like other things can be changed, but he has to survive. Like right. now, we're just picking what we can and can't change. Right. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah. You got, it's like, it's got to be one thing. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it, it doesn't have to be like one thing or the other. Right. Mm-hmm. But maybe um, that is, that is this episode. Maybe it does prove him wrong that he was just being arrogant. That maybe the point of this episode is that you can change, like, depending on if we think that Cole was always going to be saved, because if Agent Gale wasn't always meant to survive, if he hadn't been there for this, then maybe Cole would have died. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, that, yeah, that is a good point. Was there a different version of this, right? Yeah. Like, um, where Gale was dead in 1961. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Oh, that makes my head hurt. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> like, I don't want to go further down this road. <laughs> yeah. Like, speaking of heads hurting, <laughs> that takes us to Cassie walking through the lobby. And you knew when, like... It, I love it because it like goes back to season one. You're like, uh oh, if somebody's getting a paradox headache, something funky is going on here, right? Like, um, and you have sort of that clue of the woman complaining about the stolen coat. Now, one of the things that you don't figure out, um, which is sort of another question that makes my head hurt a little bit. So I'll be curious on on y'all's take on this. The German seller in this episode is. A young is the young Nazi soldier in Die Glocke, who is the one person that survives Cassie's glorious um, <laughs> machine gun assault on all of them in her laundry. He is the only one who survived it, picked up the lead case, the Ananerba case, and at the last minute, substituted in the empty case an old bell that he found upstairs that was on display in 1940. So he knows, number one, he knows he's selling a fake. And number two, the reason why he's so rattled when he sees Cole is because he saw Cole like 20-something years ago and Cole looks exactly the same. Yeah, that is so cool. I love that. Which means... Am I thinking about this the right way? That they are risking, (laughs) like, the stakes and everything they're risking and possible death for something that was never in the briefcase to begin with. Yeah. No, that is right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this whole episode is like, I mean, it's the mission itself in this episode is pointless. Like, they're just, it's all just loops of, like, you know, places they already were, but, like, they don't. They don't get anything out of it, and it did not need to be done. Well, they do, though. I mean, so that the interesting thing about the interesting thing about all of these loop missions where they're chasing their own tail is that um, because you know it's a well-written show and it still has to move the plot, is they always find out an accurate and vital piece of information, even if the re- even if the reason why they were there was them chasing their tail. Does that make sense? So <laughs> no, like, right. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. right about that. So like in Fatherland, they were they were there because they planted the the thing in the report, but then they discover Kirshner and the Word of the Witness, right? And then or Kirshner's lab and little girl Olivia and the Word of the Witness. And then in this episode, they get the vital clue that they get from Gale is the Deglaca clue, which will send them to 1940 to actually retrieve the weapon. So it's like part of it, the actual thing they're trying to get in this episode is pointless, but they get a vital piece of information. They wouldn't have figured out what the bell actually was if they didn't cross paths with Gail, which actually Mm. makes it even more important that Cassie made that different choice in nature to tell him about 1961. Right. But if they have no way to figure that out. 
Yeah. If they hadn't crossed paths with with Gale, then it would have been the weapon in the suitcase. Oh, right. (laughs) Right. That is the other way. Oh, man, you're right. Ah. Um, Here's the other thing. Am I – the first time we experience Cole being poisoned, um, Cassie walking and finding him on the ground – He is spitting up the dark liquid because he already has the charcoal in his belly. Correct? Yes. Yeah. Because the plant itself was like a small green plant. um, And it's a charcoal mixture that's supposed to counteract the poison. So in that – am I thinking about this the right way? That in that moment that Cassie, you know, sees that he's dying and and first, like, you know – goes back in time to redo it even in that moment she has actually already saved him yeah they're just showing it from both perspectives yeah first time we're following like cassie number one and the second time we're following cassie number two got it okay but even so i just thought it was like the the like how many like even in that moment it's like she's experiencing this horrible moment of thinking that he's gonna die even though he actually has already been saved (laughs) you know like uh um when she goes back and sort of if we if we think of it as like oops loop round two, um, Selena, you mentioned this. You see sort of un- the beginnings of these different outlooks for them when Cole is like, we need the weapon. It's the only thing that matters. And she's like, it's not the only thing that matters. Mm-hmm. Um, which is just like, I, I, my heart really, like, I know that Cole is like very mission oriented and it makes sense, but this, you know, this is an episode where at least I feel like I am really with, like, we're really in her point of view. Yeah. I think they do a lot. Like, it's always Cassie, it was her point of view initially, but I think they've done a lot to sort of switch it to Cole and switch the importance to Cole, but they really do a lot, especially in this final season, to switch it like firmly back to Cassie I really feel like even though it's kind of Cole's origin story it's Cassie's emotional state that we are encouraged to sympathize with because I mean Cole sometimes the the closer we get to the end I think the closer the, the harder it is to sympathize with Cole because he feels a little standoffish and he feels a little withdrawn because he is withdrawing himself mm-hmm. and she becomes the sort of emotional anchor for both of them. Right. Cause he's become sort of fatalistic. Mm-hmm. This is what I have to do. Yeah. And very self centered. I think in, in some way, in a weird way, like I think even Cassie says it at some point that he is so focused on himself and his own place in the story and his own sort of the idea that he can, do his thing and peace out and be sort of at at one with the universe all by himself you know like it's it's he's very maybe she doesn't say this maybe it's just me projecting (laughs) 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 i i really find i really identify with cassie you know um that that is just he is so he he could do this all by himself you know like he is turning people away left and right and cassie is sort of even though she's mostly focused on Cole, she isn't really focused on Jennifer and, and Jones and all that. She really kind of is his emotional anchor for a lot of this kind of final stage, I think. Yeah, I mean, because she's, um, I mean, she's the one left behind. So, you know, yes, like, yeah. it's it's a different emotional journey to be the one, you know, if you think about it sort of in our real world terms, if somebody was terminally ill versus the loved one that's being left behind, those are two very different 
emotional journeys. Mm-hmm. Um, because for one, it's going right? to, I mean, just to bring it back to the themes of the show, for one person, for Cole, there's an end, even if he doesn't quite at this point understand what that end actually means for him. And the other person is going to be living in the after, right? Like that. Exactly. Yeah. So we're back to the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, if we go to sort of um, when Cassie and Shaw meet, um, if you we kind of like reorient ourselves for Cassie, you know, she saw Shaw, what, like a few months ago um, when she was in 1953 for Shaw and for we call it a pallid boy, pallid young man. Um, it's been 13 years, and the boy Palatine. is now <laughs> a super creepy teen. And um, Cassie looks exactly the same um, as she did at the cemetery. And that's the last time. I mean, they were in the tent together, but I don't. I don't really think Shaw. The camera never really showed us like Shaw focusing on Cassie. So, sort of the last interaction, which apparently had as much of an impact on Shaw as it did on Cassie, because he tells her, you know, the last time we saw each other, you spoke of a love I seldom have felt since my own, and this sort of strange connection through loss that the two of them have, I find really fascinating. Um, tell me sort of like what you guys think about this debate that they have where he says, there's no tomorrow or yesterday in the Red Forest. Cassie says it's destruction. And he says, no, it's freedom. I mean, I, he, neither of them are wrong. (laughs) Right. Like it's, it is depending on your point of view. Like we kind of, we, we already talked about that depending on what you think about this idea of now being something that eventually has to permanently run out or something that you can kind of win over, you know, that you can kind of beat, you can you can find a way to sort of cheat the system and get your now forever. Like that, in that sense, that's what he believes the Red Forest is. And I think what is interesting is that we're kind of talking about the Red Forest as like, is it good or is it bad? But we don't even it could be destruction. Like that's what the only thing we've seen of the Red Forest is this kind of hell on earth, babies becoming skeletons, becoming babies. And that is what Cassie's talking about when she's talking about it being destruction. Mm-hmm. And I think it is kind of, that's like the second part of the Red Forest question that I know you guys have brought up a lot in your on the podcast is that if it was the paradise that Shaw is suggesting that's one thing, but we have no guarantee that that's true. Right. I mean, I think it's interesting. One of the things that we see that is a little bit different um, with respect to Shaw and sort of perhaps is fueling his, I mean, in part, maybe confirming his belief in the Red Forest is that the future witness Olivia allows him to, like at the beginning of the episode, he is she's allowing him to witness those moments from the past. Yeah. Because keyword she, witness though, right? Like 
Yeah, but, yeah, right. He's not participating in it because he's he's observing something through drinking the red tea or whatever that she is controlling from Titan in twenty forty six because he's begging her like, let me just stay for another minute longer. So we're not just in his memories, like in his head. Well, I guess we are, but like, but it's something that future witness Olivia is doing, which is really interesting because I don't think we've seen her do that with anybody before am i thinking about that the right way mm-hmm. like he's actually like witnessing those moments in time with her yeah when she tells him to go back and get the weapon yeah yeah kind of like um, side along time travel it's it's like his idea of the red forest isn't as far as we know doesn't have anything to do with the actual red forest because olivia right. like as we get to know later she's just making it up as she goes along Right. And she is showing him this, you know, perhaps if, if you were Shaw and you were being shown this, you would have belief in it, right? Like she's, she's dangling the fruit right in front of him, right? Like this yeah. is, this is the goal. This it's is what tempting. you would get to it's, live yeah, in. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a form of paradise, like depending on your point of view, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think there's some really interesting uh, moving to the scene where he poisons Cassian Cole um, and just kind of picking up on the fact that he, I I believe, used to be a minister. But even he's even in sort of the text, he he says religion is the business of transformation, person to a better person, body to spirit. And then he has them face each other. It, it almost kind of looks like some sort of perverse, like, wedding ceremony. And then he has them kneel. And then he places the flowers in their mouth. And, like, I grew up Catholic. Like, it looks like getting on your – when you get down on your knees and you're given communion. And then has them say amen afterwards. So it kind of has this like, I don't know if it was an intentional or not with the direction, but at least to me as like a former Catholic, I had a very like, this feels like a super perverse communion. Um, well, and it's, it's kind of twisted in general because what has he done if not created another religion? I mean, well, yeah, you know what I'm I saying? Mean, that, like that he's he like, religion that. is this, religion is that. And then it's like, Okay, well, you just made an, a different one. But that's but I think that's his point, right? Like his point is, I used to believe in a heaven. I lost my faith when my wife died because I don't want I don't want a, this idea of an ethereal afterlife. I want to be with her in our moment in our life, and that's my new version of an afterlife. And so I think that's his argument, really, is like, which is interesting, because that's sort of like what, you know, Sean Tretta, when he was on the podcast, said, like, for people that are so anti-Red Forest, how is the idea of living in this sort of perpetual afterlife where it is, in some ways, your, however you want to frame it, spirit, it's not living in sort of a physical life the way we do now? How is that that different than many religions, like, that currently people follow? Right. And it was and, an interesting point. And not to like, not to talk about the good place, but, but um, to talk about the good place, one, the thing, the way that I, without giving any spoilers away for how it actually ends, how I imagined they would eventually sort of sol- solve the good place problem was to kind of make a point of the fact that true, quote unquote, heaven is what you share with other people. You know, like that's kind of the X factor that maybe this idea of this perfect afterlife 
misses out on, which is what Shaw believes that the Red Forest is, is somewhere where he can spend forever with the person that made his life good. Mm-hmm. As opposed to But just only him. in memories, which is what I've always just right. found very confusing. Mm-hmm. Right. But maybe she was like it was supposed to be like a preview <laughs> of what you could expect. <laughs> that's, I never but it's a good point though, because I never really understood that either. If that's if he believed that if he was in the Red Forest he would get to stand and watch forever, or if he believed that he would sort of enter into himself. I think he gets to live in it, right? As opposed mm. to simply observing. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because, you know, certainly um, having grown up Christian and heard people talking about when someone dies and talking about them joining other people that they loved who have already died. I feel like that's something that it's a it's a for people who believe in some sort of afterlife. It's something that's often been expressed to me like, well, now they're with so and so and they're referring to somebody else who previously died. So the idea that you get to be with the people you love isn't in of itself in an afterlife isn't in of itself sort of a foreign idea, right? Like there's all different threads of the Red Forest that you can compare sort of in parallel to other religions. It's just, you know, like, which I think maybe is sort of the point that this scene is making, even though it's really fucked up because he's poisoning two people and making them, like, watch, right? The other thing, though, that's always just like, I mean, it just confuses me is I feel like, and and ultimately, at the end of the day, I think we don't really know what it is. But the thing that's always confused me is, like, Shaw, who is, like, its biggest proponent, is speaking, you know, as if he's going to get to live in these memories, like, as in this perfection that he remembers. Whereas when Cole's talking to Cassie, he's like, you know, we can go live in that house and, like, raise a son and do these things. And it's like, but you never did any of that. Yeah. 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 I mean, because (laughs) nobody... But no... I mean, to me, that makes sense because either... Either what we... Up until that point, nobody, whether whatever you think happens at the end, up until that point, when Cole is saying that to Cassie, there is no human being that actually knows what it would be. Right, for sure. You know, like it's a scientific theory and you can have a theory about um, what you think it will be like to live in that. And as Chantretta said, what we saw in season two was not a complete red forest. Like it, it, it was on the brink of it, but it was not complete yet. And that is why it looked all messed up. But we will never, well, if you think that Cassie turned it off, we will never know what it looked like. And so when Shaw is talking about it, what Cole is talking, when Cole is talking about it, it's the same as people nowadays describing like what their version of heaven would be. Like none of us know, right? So it's just their theory about what it, or or even like putting religion aside, a, a scientific theory that's not proven yet, right? Like we don't know what it actually would be because it hasn't happened. Right. Well, because we know that Cassie stopped the countdown, <laughs> we will never know what the Red Forest is like. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I mean, I do think that I just, I really, really, really feel for her <laughs> in the moment with that conflict. Well, oh, you know, I actually have this other question. Other than sort of obviously all of this is is teeing up sort of the the big cul- like culminating moment in the finale for Cassie. What like 
Shaw and Cassie had this connection at the cemetery in 1953, even if Cassie was sort of selling um, the truth, like the lie with the truth. Um, What do you think his goal is here? Like he really thinks that she is potentially a follower? It's a good question because the kind of attention that he gives her like we want to obviously believe that it's more than just he knows she's the main character of this tv show and he wants to help her express her inner true self um but i mean i do wonder because there's a question of like who is the true witness and who is the true Mm -hmm. person who's meant to bring about the red forest and with Shaw being so connected to it all it's it is a question of if he didn't somehow always know that cassie was the one who would ultimately almost slash maybe um get them there yeah no i know that olivia um when when christopher monfett was on last time he confirmed that like even right now olivia it's almost like she has pieces of the puzzle and she doesn't know everything either. Um, but we know that from 45 RPM that she saw Cassie on the balcony with the countdown. Like we, we saw that image when we were in Olivia's point of view. If you, if you think back throughout the series with the witness speaking directly to Cassie in season two via Aaron Marker and then switching to Cole's face, And that's sort of the first time we heard of the Red Forest being this sort of trying to overcome death. Um, And then just sort of trace all of these interactions that she has. It's probably just like pure speculation, but like it's really interesting to think about who knew what and the role that she was going to play. Do you know what I mean? Like in terms of the Army of the Twelve Monkeys and future Mm -hmm. Olivia. Um, now she's fighting her at the end, so presumably, but you never know what Olivia is doing because she thinks that's what has to happen, you know? Like, so, yeah, it's interesting to think about. Um, that brings us to Jones and Jennifer um, back in 2046, freaking out <laughs> and trying to figure out what they can do. Um, do you, so do you guys interpret this that Gail? purposefully quoted H.G. Wells as the time machine in his report to flag sort of after this all happened to get them to find him. Is that how you guys interpret it? Yeah, I would say so. Okay. I, th- I think it's hilarious, though, like, just thinking, like, again, those moments we never get to see with them hanging out, like, under what circumstances would Cole sit around and being like, oh, yeah, so I met this guy. And he really liked H.G. Wells. Did you get that? Could you write that down? H.G. Wells. You know, like really make sure they remember that detail. Well, Jones, I love that Jones, you know, Jones is such a woman of varying interests. She knows it by heart. She knows that quote. Yeah, I know. <laughs> You know, like she's not just actually like inventing science fiction. She's also oh, no, reading she's a about huge it. Fan. Yeah. <laughs> As she listens to like Bach on her <laughs> like record player. She just caught her she's in between like, the like H.G. Wells podcast that she's binging. <laughs> um, uh, tell me your feelings when that sort of like 1940s music starts up and we see Agent Gale return. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I you know this might be the a good time to to confess something since this is like my third Agent Gale episode. I I did not actually like Agent Gale that much 
until this episode. I'll just quickly say that. But I really? I just, I didn't, I don't know what it was. I just, I didn't get him. Like the first time he was introduced and he made that, that mean comment to Cole or Cassie or whoever it was. And, that, and I was like, oh, what a jerk. I hate him. And then he came back and he was all like, oh yeah, I'm so cool with the time. And I was like, no, you're not. You're stupid. <laughs> I like, just like refused <laughs> to like him. And then when he like came back and he was like all heroic and he died, and I was like, ah, I guess it's sad, whatever. But then when he came back in this episode, I was like, oh, Asian kid. Like, you know, like I didn't realize how important <laughs> it was for me to like see him again. So I had a real journey with this, with this character. <laughs> I mean, I think he's definitely evolved. They showed that, you know, even in such a small way. Like, at first, even though he's not, or at least he doesn't turn out to be, like, he seems just like such a government stiff, you know? And he kind of, like, evolves from that. And But, I mean, think about preventing your own death. I mean, this dude has to feel bulletproof. Yeah. But he is just, like, yeah, he is, like, a government stiff, and he is, like, a little bit of, like, a self-insert character, I think, for yeah. the writers, but now he's, like, so free. I mean, can you just imagine the freedom of being, like, and now I have life that I wouldn't have had before. Let's go. Like- oh, my God. So I just have to say, as a former government stiff, I always loved Agent Gale. Oh, <laughs> like, you're sweet. Like, <laughs> like, like, felt ah. represented and seen. That's good. <laughs> I, oh, like, I even have, like, a small crush on Agent Gale, the way I have a crush on Agent Coulson. I love these, like, straight laced funny comeback they always freaking come through like i love i i will admit that i have a tiny crush on agent gale um which i feel appropriate with like once you get to 42 you start to feel like at least he's older than me like there's i'm starting to run out of crushes that are older (laughs) than me (laughs) but um one little thing i noticed because beep it kind of picks up on like um, what you were saying about like once you kind of save your own life. So do you guys remember when Cole found Gail in 1961 and they first – when they met at the Emerson Hotel and his life had kind of fallen apart because of this, right? Like everybody thought he was crazy. His marriage had fallen apart. He had a granddaughter that he didn't really see. Do you guys remember that? Yeah, um, he was a hot mess. In this episode, he has a wedding ring back on. And – I don't know Aww. if that's sort of an, uh, um, like a, I mean, who knows if that was like intentional or not, but I caught that this time because he seems very different than he did in 1961, right? He's like, very different. Because we can't, um, it, like we've seen him out of order, right? So we saw him in the 40s, the 1950s, 1950s, he's sort of being made fun of by his colleagues, but... And he's kind of like the joke around the office. He's the crazy monkey conspiracy guy. But in 1961, when we saw him, he it, it kind of seemed like I kind of got the impression like Agent Gale goes home and kind of like drinks alone and his life has fallen apart. This is now five years after he made that change. Agent Gale seems like great. Like, and he's got a wedding ring on and he's got like a smart, like, cardigan like combo like suit like his whole demeanor to at least to me seemed a little bit different and not sort of the beaten down like it's funny because selena you had talked about it like in terms of sort of wendy and peter pan the character that gets left the encounter character that gets sort of left behind Mm -hmm. and he seemed like in a much better place in this episode and i wonder if it's sort of beep what you were saying like he saved his life and sort of what perspective that gives you, right? Well, and even before that, I mean, because you're talking about, in theory, like the time 
you know, once he found out, he still had a few years before that even came about where he could have saved himself. But even if you look at it from that perspective, like, it's kind of like with Jennifer, you know, like knowing when you were going to die, he was like, well, I'm going to go ahead and make some changes now. And then on top of that, he, he survived it. And it's like, man, I'm just riding high, you know? Yeah, like, it's so interesting. Like, you can kind of invent a whole like, uh, you know, obviously, it's all headcanon. But like, did finding out that he could potentially die in 1961? Did he like, save his marriage? Did he maybe find someone else? Like, who knows? But like, they costuming is pretty intentional in this show. So mm. I don't know, like, um, no, this is kind of this is, in a way, his after, isn't it? Like, he's been through the war. He's come out on the other side. He's revived himself. He's he's alive in this in this now. That is, like, this is the last time we see him, right? So this is kind of yeah. his ending is a happy one, just like everyone else. Yeah. The Jennifer and Gail team up. Tell me your feelings. I love Jennifer with new Gail. Yeah. <laughs> I think Jennifer with old Gail, like, might have not gone yeah, so well. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, that might have been annoying. But this is so good. Like, she, again, she can just team her up with anyone. Yeah, totally. But this is also another one of those Jennifer things where it's like, she's acting like she's seen people act in movies doing the thing that she's trying to do. Like, <laughs> I'm going to go be a spy. Well, what does that look like? It looks like something from a noir film. Like, you know, this is yeah. Jennifer. Like, so funny. That's how she deals with everything. It's just like, what is, what have I seen or heard that looks like that thing? And that's how I'm going to go in there and approach it. Like, but that's right. so ridiculous. That's also what I love. Oh, oh, go ahead. No, please. I was just going to say, that's also why she's such a good fit for Gail, because Gail is in so many ways like a character taken straight out of one of those noir movies. Yes. Yeah. Such yeah. Such a stereotype. Yeah. But even he thinks she's like on ridiculous <laughs> well yeah because she's like i mean here's the thing that's so that is just like the comedic magic of it is like that scene at the bar oh my god it's great <laughs> you she, must be jennifer and she's like Shh. no right? like, so she's dressed in a trench coat and a hat and glasses that like <laughs> listen like a what we've seen all the women in 1966 women are not wearing those hats right no. like so she is dressed like a character in a spy movie or tv show whereas gail is like yeah no i know because i'm like i'm a fucking fbi agent <laughs> like <laughs> i'm for real like what are you right like he's already had like real espionage dramas like that we watched in 1961 and like sort of the like pop culture like footnote to this um is some of the most popular pop culture like in the late 60s were spy dramas right like so there's sort of the real world history that they kind of sprinkle throughout like the fact that the people that are that are meeting the German seller are Russian spies, right? And you have the fallout shelter posters reminding you that we're sort of in the height of the Cold War. But like, the top movie of the year was a, a movie, One of Our Spies is Missing. There's another movie, another spy movie called The Russians Are Coming. The popular TV shows are like, I Spy, Get Smart, Man From Uncle. Like, so it's not like... <laughs> even if like Jennifer as always is like totally on point with her pop culture because even like that real world Cold War espionage was like permeating pop culture in 1966 as well so it's just like I happen to come from like a long line of TV nerds and like Man From <laughs> Uncle was like my mom's most favorite show and her 
first like TV crush other than Captain Kirk. And so like, I was just like, think I found that that was like the top movie for 1966. And I'm like, Jennifer is like always on point with her pop culture because she looks like and is acting like one of those characters from the show. But it's ridiculous because Gail's actually an FBI agent. Um, the dialogue is just in this scene is it, it, there's so many like um, the fact that she wanted him to say that he came uptown from the Bronx when that makes zero sense if you're in Manhattan yeah. and Jennifer <laughs> you still live in New York and still gets it wrong like oh I think she did that on purpose you think so? Yeah. I mean, because he's like, what? Um, Shaken Not Stirred is obviously like a James Bond reference. And then she's like, it's so funny when she's like, you know, Cassie Cole's like, yeah, they're in trouble. Like, I- I've been doing this a lot. <laughs> right? Like, it's just like, as an audience member, it's so great. Because you're like, yeah, Gail's bailed them out a lot. Um then we get obviously the um like awesome reveal that he did make a change. And they actually when um Pretty sure when Terry Metalis was on, he said that that was something they actually filmed for season three for that episode of Nature. And then they decided to hold it back and reveal it here that Gail was alive, which is awesome. Um, But that takes us to sort of their um, spying on the Russians next door and the – I love sort of the irony of it's a message for me passed on through eons of climb the steps and ring the bell when it's like, yes and no. (laughs) Because it is a message the primaries wanted to receive. And yet it's Jennifer who like drew that on the wall like a few seconds later, which is also, I thought, a great kind of callback to sort of the season one Jennifer drawing in black on the wall. True. Um, Yeah. And also, again, such a great sort of full circle thing because it is ultimately her like she is mm-hmm. her own message. Right. She found it and she's the one who wrote it. <laughs> so technically she's correct and the primary did leave that message for them. Um, that that takes us to sort of the sort of final back at the Emerson Hotel. Um, we see Deacon is there in the hallway um, and sort of there on Olivia's behalf to bring the weapon back. We have the Gale kill Shaw in the alley scene. Do you guys have sort of any thoughts about the way that unfolds? It's almost a little bit of an anti-climax for that character, isn't it? Like you almost wish it had something to do with Cassie, Mm -hmm. his death. Um, Yeah. Or that Gale was somehow a little bit more connected to, to the man, the man in the hat. That's not his name. The, what is his name? The Shaw. Shaw. No, the other one. Pallid man. Pallid, Pallid, Pallid awkward teenager. <laughs> Pallid, <guy. laughs> um, Pallid young man. Yes. <laughs> yes. Pal- Pallid yeah, lad. I mean- <laughs> um, no, but 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 I do, but but it is sort of a, an offhand kind of interesting. It also comes down to like Cole's dad died in an alley, like under a little bit similar circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. It, the one- Gail's been a little trigger happy in this episode too. Well, Gail. I mean. The the thing that you realize after is that Sh- I mean Shaw. There's a couple things. There's a couple things that like hit me rewatching it this time around. Um, the the first is in nature. It was it was Shaw and Mantis and young pallid boy who handed Gale Athan's drawing of his death in 1961. They like Cassie oh, gave him true. a clue, but they were the ones that handed him, and he was like, "What is this?" And they were like, "Fate." 
And Mm. they gave him like a picture clue of exactly how he was going to die. He makes that change, saves himself. That then results in this face-off in the alley where he shoots Shaw. Yeah, well, I mean, you think about it. I mean, Pallid Man had to know that it played out that way. He's always been very privy, you know, to what happens in the timeline because he's he has the kind of benefit of not only bouncing around the timeline, but also, I mean, he was there and remembers his dad dying. Later on, right. I mean, it is really, one of the things that's really interesting to think about is that if you go back to season one and you're watching The Pallid Man, The Pallid Man has known Cassie's face since he was a boy, right? And like, known that Cassie was there the day his mother died. Cassie was there the day his father died. He he said in the last episode in Legacy when he was talking um, to Elliot Jones, the death of my parents was very formative. Um, and so we kind of like, he loses both. If you think about this sort of from like, whose story do we tell this, like whose perspective do we tell this story from? If you're the pallid man, you have, lost both of your parents to Team Splinter, one way or another, right? Um, And he says that it's formative. And so it's kind of, you know, sort of, Selena, what you were saying, it's all tied together in this, like, horrible cycle of he lost his father the same way he takes the life of Cole's father, you know, decades later in an alley with a gun. You know, but Shaw also, it's very clear he chooses this death, you know? He tells his son, I'll see you in the in the forest and he's not taking out a gun he's holding on to like the the jack which is his sort of talisman yeah. for his wife. Mm. Um it's very much a choice. And that must again be it is it is so interesting the thing about what story you're telling because in there's another version of the show that I'm glad that's not the version we get but where Ethan and the pallid man are kind of like the Olivia's daughter and Jones's daughter kind of figures that get to have this interaction and get to show how kind of parallel lives and and losses they've experienced because there's this one very small moment in the scene when Gail kills um, Shaw and is looking at the pallid man or the pallid lad and you (laughs) your sympathy shifts just like for a moment you're like oh crap like gail is the person like again in the shoes of the pallid man that killed cole's father except now the pallid man is cole and he's the boy that just lost his father and it's only because we know gail doesn't know but we know that he grows up to be awful and his only you know obviously he he does do bad things in this episode but he's also a boy and he's also being groomed to do these things just as Ethan was a boy and being groomed to do these things and it's just it is you turn it around and and they don't really do a big they don't make a big deal of it but they do linger on just a little bit in that moment to make at least I felt a little uncomfortable in that scene because I was like oh well actually Gail just killed a kid's dad in front of the kid who was unarmed yeah yeah. I mean, they could have evened it out, right? You could have had Shaw with a gun. They they very purposefully, he's unarmed and he does choose it. But if you are, if you are his son and you are there over the body of your father and you're looking up at Gail, like Gail is the man who killed your father when your father was unarmed. And in you're right. I and mean, Selena, that's such a great parallel to that, uh, to the season one episode paradox where you had sort of that 
you know, from the perspective of boy Cole in the backseat of the car, right in the alley as as they speed away and his father is shot. Um, and 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 the pallid man is standing over Matthew Cole. You know, very, it's very similar to Agent Gale standing over him, right? Mm-hmm. It's like this horrible cycle, right? I mean, there's so many cycles in this show of 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 parents and children losing parents and people losing pe- people before their time and through violence. Um, yeah. Um, there's a lot like for and there's some fun Easter eggs that I'll save for the end for rabbit holes of sort of some of the posters that are on the wall um, in that episode. I mean, in that scene. Um, that takes us to sort of closing um, the oops loop of actually saving Cole. Um, the the dialogue between Jennifer and Gail is hilarious because they call each other like really mean, but kind of endearing like funny names like jennifer's like whatever pops and he's like okay psycho like they're like back and forth is so like um but you know one of the scenes that really kind of hurts your heart is cassie which is you know obviously something that can only happen in a time travel show is cassie behind the wall having to listen to herself go through that moment where cole is dying and just thinking about like how that can only happen in a time travel show, but like how difficult would it be to listen to yourself in such a moment of like agony? Mm, and Ugh. again, it's it's a it's a going back to what's his face it's Shaw. I cannot remember his name. Um, <laughs> to, to Shaw's vision of the Red Forest, where we see him witnessing himself losing his wife, and that's the moment that Cassie has here. She witnesses herself lose or thinks she's losing Cole. And then she's mm-hmm. immediately confronted with, but what if that didn't have to be the end? Right. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it, it is it is the opposite of a Red Forest moment. <laughs> it, she is like stuck in a horrible moment, um, uh, not just once in this episode. Um, beep, the Jennifer and Deacon scene. Go. Shut up. No, no. <laughs> They're just, I mean, aren't they just perfect? Isn't everything about them perfect? (laughs) What else can you even say? I mean, I love the callback to Jennifer's wink when, you know, she kind of pulled one over on him in season three and she did the little wink and click thing before she was splintered away. And he kind of answers it back like, I'm on my own mission, but we're still on the same side. It's such a great call. Oh, and it's so over the top. Like, it's just... It's Deacon, man. He's got a flair for drama. It's so (laughs) over the top. It's not like... I mean, he clearly wasn't worried about anyone seeing that because he, like, (laughs) stopped and turned in his whole face, and it's just, like, this whole ordeal. But um, I love that she always believed in him, and I love that he's the only person... I mean... Sorry, I love that she is the person that he reveals it to. I mean, he doesn't, obviously he doesn't even cross paths with anybody else, but it's like, it matters to him that she knows. It it matters in that you, that's what's so great about it is that he, you know, he deliberately stops and turns. He's going to walk away and he's like, in his shoulders, you can see him being like, you know what? No, I can't stand that she thinks this about me. <laughs> and then he just gives this obnoxious wink and like from anyone else that would have just been a haha I'm evil you can't stop me but from him to her it's it's obvious to her immediately and he could be tricking her as well it could all be just to get him to get her to trust him but she knows that 
he's for real because they have a connection. <sighs> <laughs> you know, when he sings his signature song. Yeah, he also um, has a signature song. <laughs> oh, it's so great. Yeah. There's a lot of really excellent walking through the lobby of the Emerson Hotel in this episode <laughs> um, by various characters, um, which I'm trying to think, is this is this the last episode I guess they'll be there at the end of Deglaca, but it's kind of the last. Oh, and and Hannah will be there. I take it back. I'm like, is this our sort of last mission based out of six oh seven? But Jennifer's smile also at the end of that scene, it just like makes my heart burst. It's just like, you know, this is something that they built in season two. This really unlikely friendship between the two of them, and. You know, when you have those kind of moments where it's like the chips are down and you still know something essential about that person and it's like confirmed, it's just like you just want to fist pump. It's so great. Um, all right. That brings us to sort of um, everybody is back in 607. Cole is is saved before he regains consciousness. He sees sort of the... Um, sort of the seashore with the tall grass and the waves lapping. And obviously we're going to see those images twice in the finale. One is sort of a, um, a fake out um, or he actually, the, he, when he proposes to Cassie and we will think, oh, that must've been what that was. Um, but it turns out that Cole gets a vision of his actual after life, as in his after all of his entries into the timeline are deleted. What do you guys think? Like, if you stop and think about that, what do you think is actually going on there that Cole can see that in this moment? Well, <laughs> here we go. No, um, I see it, and I I know it doesn't have to be, but I really see this as being sort of support for the idea that the whole final acts or the final moments of the show is in the red forest because i think that this this beach this sort of glowy place that he has in his mind as the keys is his his death like it is his heaven in a way i do think that 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 is where he was going he was dying he was seeing a vision of what his his quote unquote happy ever after would be and I think that he also says in this episode something about how she was there he knew he was in heaven because he knew that she would be there and I think that you know the whole final moments of them being together in the after is the story of that is what Cole needs to be at peace in a red forest that he had previously been so against. You know, he has to go through the motions of dying, of waking up, of of believing, fully believing that he had been given a, given a second chance and coming to live with Cassie in the house before he could buy into the happiness that, that the red forest gives him or heaven gives him. Um, and I think the fact that he gets a vision of it here is sort of, could be interpreted as proof that it is his 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 red forest if we consider red forest a, a heaven like afterlife given to them by time so that's an, so okay 
So I don't know if, if I explained you, that if, very well. <laughs> no, no, you did. You did. Although um, it's something that Cole has not. I mean, obviously, it goes back to the season one episode, The Keys, um, when Cassie thought he was. That was the whole. Um, uh, spy plot when he was in Chechnya and Cassie thought he was she was talking to him after when he it, because of crazy time travel stuff she knew he was she thought he was going to die and so she thought she was talking to him having already experienced his death and so she was asking him what do you think happens in the reset and he had, had described the place that he always wanted to end up sort of his idea of kind of heaven on earth as the keys right um, the thing is, is he hasn't experienced that yet. And so the idea that I know that mm-hmm. we've kind of talked about that the Red Forest can kind of everybody has so different conception of it. Um, either way, whether you think it's the Red Forest or that he because because he's because he's drank the tea, because he's cold, because he's the demon, like I don't know quite what the explanation for it is that he gets a glimpse of something that actually, if you believe that it's a reset, actually does occur in a timeline when Jones mm-hmm. hasn't done that yet. Right. Either way, he hasn't experienced it in real life. Exactly. Well, that's kind of like what I'm what I think kind of supports the idea that I was trying to say is that he hasn't this is a this is an imagined place. You know, like this is his, this looks, this, he's seeing moments from the end. Like this is Unless he's seeing something in the timeline that does happen. Yeah, well, mm, of course, that could also be true. But, but like, this isn't, he isn't actually seeing the moment when he proposes to Cassie. He's seeing like the glimpses we get in this are the glimpses from him waking up, as far as I, as I can tell. So it's kind of it support like I think it's kind of supports the idea that that the entire end is a construction, you know, like that it isn't actually real because it is a thing that is that is formed inside of Cole's mind and that the the keys that the Red Forest kind of manifests for him is an imagination of his mm. own. That is what he's he believes to be like what. OK, so I'm just going to. Try one more time. <laughs> the, what he sees here are like the the the, the pro- projections inside his own mind of like his perfect ending, like a peaceful. I'm dying. This is my quote unquote heaven. This is where I wake up, and it's something that that he his brain produces. So when he wakes up in the red forest, that is what the red forest projects for him his own idealized version of his own happily ever after that obviously is only one interpretation it is equally likely that it's time showing him a glimpse of after which is why the ending is so ambiguous <laughs> right or 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 see or see he is witnessing he is witness uh, it is something that happens within this timeline because he's getting a glimpse because of serum shenanigans he's drank mm-hmm, the red tea mm-hmm, he's mm-hmm. james cole whatever insert yes um, mythology explanation <laughs> that what he what he actually saw in that moment was an event in this timeline which is when he proposed to cassie because when you go back i, I am a nerd and i went <laughs> i compared sort of the images that are edited in um and you have you have the waves going to the right you have the waves going to the left 
Um, I think in the proposal scene, they show us waves from both directions. I don't think they show us the grass. I think the grass is from the season finale scene. And certainly at the end of the episode, the, the glimpse of when Cole is standing up and the sand is going through his fingers, that's not from the proposal scene. That's obviously from the, the coda. Um, and so, you know, you could interpret it when he says it felt good. It felt like you were there. Maybe he was just in that moment seeing something on the timeline of when he proposes to her, which does happen in this timeline. Yeah, um, maybe. It's super interesting. Now, the thing that you – that you're the, – the one thing, the Red Forest theory, the one question then that it raises is that means Cole's Red Forest moment is different than Cassie's. Because yes. Cassie's Red Forest moment is in. So everyone's yes. living in like a simulate, like their mm-hmm. own memory. They're not actually together. Right. Well, that's that's my, my thought <laughs> you know? of the, the actual Red Forest is that it has to find a way to unify them in something that they, because their happiness is like their happy ever after is dependent on each other. But because they can't, like unlike Shaw, where he's like imagining that he's living in a perfect little bubble where his wife isn't really there. Like she's just a projection in his, like Cole and Cassie's happily ever now Red Forest slash reality has to include each other, but they also, it has to be both of their, of their realities. So my whole thing, theory about the ending if it is the red forest and i hate the fact that i am convincing myself because i don't want to <laughs> i know we need beep to bring us bring us back here <laughs> but was like what i what i sort of the way i i saw it was that it needed to add some fiction to spin it so that both cassie and cole believed that they were in reality before they got to their their house where they were kind of locked in there forever now because they wouldn't just be able to be transported there and been like, ta-da, you're in the Red Forest, enjoy eternity. Like they they wouldn't have been happy there, truly happy, but they would be truly happy if they believed in the, that the illusion was real. So they planted, uh, they, you know, they, the ones that control the Red Forest, um, (laughs) You know, Sean planted, this, planted it. it Sean Trella <laughs> planted Cole in, in his his heaven where he woke up and he was dead. And then he from there could believe, yes, I'm really alive. I got my second chance. And uh, Jennifer is even there to explain it to me. And Cassie had her like, yes, I'm alive and I'm without Cole, but I can still be okay. And then, ta-da, the, the Red Forest has, has done its thing. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I'm actually thinking back on what I just – so, I mean, it's it doesn't even have to be as complicated as it's like some kind of like simulation. It's just that. <laughs> but <laughs> it's No, 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 no. I mean, meaning even accepting your theory, which I don't in my heart accept, but intellectually I find interesting. Um, they, <laughs> yes, same. <laughs> is that they're living in two different memories. So if mm-hmm. Cassie's Red Forest moment, she's living in the memory – of the of this house of cedar and pine in the season two finale, maybe Cole is living in the memory of of the proposal, watching that beautiful sunset in the Keys. Um, they're not actually they in some ways they're together, and in other ways everybody's choosing their own memory. So in some ways you're together, and in s- in some ways you're not. Does that make sense? 
<laughs> like yeah. if you choose different memories, it's it's also be very it's deep, inter- bittersweet, wouldn't it? In a way, deep. How do you interpret Cole seeing this these images of the keys when he's unconscious? I would like to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it. <laughs> <laughs> I just I see all this from a little bit different perspective. I think. Um, so I think that that in and of itself can be the simplicity of time kind of communicating, um, an option because it's so in flux, right? Like time has been driven insane right now. It's like crazy. Mm -hmm. And we see people, um, often have the nosebleeds when something has solidified. So here I think he's more seeing a, a vision potentially of what could be, um, because of the tea and all the weird communication, this stuff he's he's done. Uh, the reason that I specifically want to just kind of back off that whole thing is is because when Cole is thinking of after or what after has always meant, at least up till now in the series, is not what happens to him like now. It's not a death. It's always been an erasure right? It's not as big as he learns that it is, but it's always been like, things will be reset. The plague won't occur. And you'll be going, you'll go back to being like, I don't know, six or whatever. So he just has a different life. It's not that he's like dead per se in a reset. He's there as a younger person because we don't know yet, obviously that he's going to be erased completely, which is what you know, turns out to be his huge, like, existential crisis. Like, what is worse than death? It's, like, never having existed. But I think in, like, to me, just logistically, what Cassie, you know, is worried about is not, like, him dying. It's the fact that she's going to lose the person that he is when they go back. Like, what, he'll be, like, six and she'll be, like, 30. (laughs) It's not going to work out great. Um, And all those memories and stuff, because, it, you know, also, theoretically, she wouldn't remember either. So it's like, it's not even so much about the death of a person as so much as it's just like the death of this timeline. Does that make sense? No, I, I told, yeah, no, it totally makes sense. The one thing, because I, I don't, I, I do believe that time resets and that Jones changes the code and time spits coal out and time winks its eye. Um, if, if, if that is your belief that that's what happens, coal has always been somewhat special in that if you think about the season two finale when he drank the tea, um, he was able by drinking the tea to go back and forth. Remember he faced off against what we now know as Olivia, like the two gins were facing one another in that hallway. And he was able as if you're kind of Alice in Wonderland picking out rooms mm-hmm. to to pick moments in time and go into moments in time. Like we have never seen another character other than Olivia using Titan right. be able to do that. And so yeah, he I was do- essentially time traveling without a vehicle. Right, exactly. And and anybody else who drinks the tea has been able to like uh, talk to the witness, but but hasn't been able to do what Cole was able to do in that season two finale. And all of this, I think, is kind of as far as we, I think we know, fair game speculation. We can certainly ask Mr. Metallus, Mr. Tretta next time that they're on about sort of what the canon explanation is, if there is one, about why Cole is able to see this. But in terms of speculating, I think it's it's fair to say Cole can do things, perhaps because he's the djinn, that other people can't. And so perhaps Cole either 
sees a moment along the timeline that is him proposing to Cassie in the Keys, or B, he is witnessing what his quote-unquote afterlife is because he does see the vision of him standing up, which is not from proposing to Cassie. Or or C, he is his brain is dying and he is giving himself those comforting Yes, he's just yes. seeing what he wants to. Exactly, it's the it's the doctor's explanation, or what his Matthews subconscious says. wants to, if you yes. will. I don't think he's yeah. like think about the keys, think about the keys. <laughs> yeah, Be- because keys, because keys. we right. I mean because because right because Cassie has the scientific doctor's explanation, which is you were deprived of oxygen and your brain is misfiring, and it was a hallucination, and that hallucination we know is something that he always had from a magazine cutout when. He was a kid, right? Because he told us in season one. Now, the thing that complicates it is because of the medium that we're watching, we're watching actual footage from the ending of the story. So that's the piece that, you know, it may be a projection of Cole's mind, but it happens to be a projection that exactly matches what we see at the end. Because As opposed that to like might also re- be a projection of Cole's mind. Okay, I'll stop. Right. <laughs> but I mean, that's the thing. It's a little bit different than like, say, if you were reading this in a book. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, 100%, um, yeah. we're, you know, we're seeing the actual images and they match. So. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't go back and say, reread paragraph three on page 207. <laughs> like, <laughs> you need to know that it's exactly the same. Like, Turn to page. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, but if we can just like, let's close the loop on this kind of Cassie and Cole of it all. Um, when they have this final conversation and it is like, it's painful. Um, they are in very different places. And in some ways, this conversation reminds me of their conversation at the end of Lullaby, when they were having this kind of tug back and forth of Cole being like, if this is all this is, then like, let's just go for it, right? And Cassie being like, no, but then like, it's the losing that will haunt us. And she was They were both right. (laughs) Because Cassie is sitting here, and she looks wrecked. And Cole is like, like, I'm sorry I put you through this, but it's not just that. It's she's focused on, you know, brings it back to the title of the episode, which she asked at the beginning, we never talk about after, when she goes, what about after? And this is before they even know he's going to be erased, right? It's like what Beef's talking about. They can't be together. Like, he's going to be a boy. And I like the thing about the writing on rewatch and the editing that I think is so brilliant is that. It's not just a conversation between the two characters where Cassie is saying what's going to happen after and Cole is offering this kind of, well, I had a vision, you know, like, you know, I think it's going to be all right because you were there and she is kind of the scientific rejection of that. It's also to the audience. Cassie is saying, like, what about after? And the editing is actually showing us what happens after. In however you want to interpret it, right? Which you never could have picked up on the first time you watched it. And then when you rewatch it, you're like, oh my God, right? Like there's another layer of what this dialogue means that the editing then kind of reveals to you once you actually know what those images are from. Mm -hmm. Um, So clever. It is. And then sort of what I love is the line, we can save the world or we can save each other. We can't do both. And Which is it's if, an interesting line, though, because is it is it true? Like, can they save each other if they don't save the world? If she, chose I was just the thinking forest. the same thing. Yeah, like, can you really? Is there any 
eventuality that they understand in which they can save each other. And I, I don't. If she I don't chooses, think that's right. If she chooses the red forest, I mean the whole closing scene. Yeah, but that doesn't save the world in theory. Well, that's but you. They can either be together or they can save the world. I suppose they could save each other if they like. They've talked about that before, like going back to like eighteen hundred and five. And just, yeah, and just, like, chilling there till it all <laughs> falls well, to yeah. shit. <laughs> I mean, even at the end of the series, in the finale, Cassie's like, why don't we just stay here? Like, fuck right. it. We'll stay right. in 2046. You don't have to delete yourself, mm. right? Like, and that's an option of we save ourselves or we save the world. But um, you know what I what I do think is so interesting about this, this scene and this conflict between them is that it is something that has been building mm-hmm. for the whole show this this and i think they do a pretty good job especially the episode where they have cassie sort of be with her mother and stuff of getting away from this a little bit but they do have this this dynamic where more and more sort of cassie's whole story or her whole purpose is now that ethan is no longer there it is cole and cole's purpose and and focus is so much more for lack of a better word like it is it is on the world it is on himself it is on his family history and his the mystery of who his mother was and all that and and i think this scene just really hammers home the sort of the 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 a little bit frustrating not because it's bad but just because it's frustrating to watch how cole is just like it's not enough for him like that's what cassie is is what breaks her heart in so many ways is that is that like he doesn't want to save them. Like, he does want to save her, but he doesn't want to save the two of them over the whole world, where she's mm-hmm. coming to realize that, that that is not necessarily what she ends up doing, but what she is very, very tempted to do is to choose him over everyone else or to choose them. Her- and as always, even though we haven't said it in a little bit, it just circles right back to the entire premise of the story. One versus seven billion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Or two the, in this case, the perhaps. Two, yeah, <laughs> because, because that's that's the, the thing about Cole as well as that he is willing to save Cassie. When when push comes to shove, you know, he chooses Cassie. Even in this episode. Yeah, exactly. And, and that yeah, is- but as far as he's concerned about himself, mm-hmm. he's still the Cole of the pilot. Yeah. That yeah. says this has always been a one-way trip for me. Yeah. Because because his because it's so tied up in self worth and redemption and having to finish this right. Yeah. I mean, if you think about where they're two, if you think about where they both started in the pilot, Cassie is somebody who has everything at least on the surface that you could possibly want, right? Successful career, like, you know, cute boyfriend, like, you know, before that all goes to shit. Um, <laughs> like, you know, on the surface, she has what seems like a great life. And and systematically, everything is stripped away from her, right? Even the things that she gains along the way, a son, a loved, a, a, a partner, right? She will lose all of that. In addition to everything she's already lost, she's lost her career, she's lost her world, right? And for Cole, it's it's like a, they have like crisscrossing journeys. Like he's gained everything, but it's always been this kind of um, like clamoring for this redemption because he doesn't, it's like he doesn't like who he is without it. Um, but it's also like he's, gr- he's grateful for anything because he yeah. never expected to have anything at all. 
Right. By the time he starts this journey, you know, he's been living in the post-apocalypse for years upon years, and he has nothing. And that's what his future looks like, too. It's nothing but bleak. So when he has this opportunity and he gains anything at all in the resemblance, you know, family and relationship and all this stuff, it's like, wow, this was just the icing on the cake I never knew I was going to have anyway. So I guess this it's better to be erased this way than, you know, to never have anything. Yeah. But, I mean, if you were to watch, like, the scene at the end of Lullaby and this one, <laughs> like – their viewpoints on what's worth the cost that has kind of remained fixed right like cole is the cole is the kind of person that's like we live for the now right and it's going to be the final thing he tells us um whereas yeah he's always been the cost of the mission Mm -hmm. always right Mm -hmm. and cassie has someone who has always when she told us in lullaby it's the losing that haunts us like she is a person who like shaw like can't let that go, yeah. you know, or, or or maybe she ultimately does, but it's someone that that loss, you know, people handle loss in different ways. And the thing that Shaw recognizes in her correctly is that she is like him in that kind of raging against death yeah. and loss. Yeah, the, the now is not enough for her. Right. She's always- And Cole is very much now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, the thing that's great about that line, we can save the world or we can save each other, that is her um, standing on the balcony dilemma. It's also because of Jones, they'll ultimately get to do both. <laughs> and so, you know, like the writers are setting up this either or choice. And then Selena, as you pointed out, they like let us have our cake and eat it. Too. Yes. <laughs> they did. They you know? did both in, in every way because, yes, we did get our sad ending and our happy ending. We got our, yes, they escaped the red forest. And, oh, but did they really? Oh, it's so good. And it annoys mm-hmm. me so much. <laughs> <laughs> you want you want it to hurt. I, I, don't, I, don't. I want to believe that they're not in the red forest, but my, my brain just keeps telling me that they are. Oh, it's so it's it's too good to be true. Yeah. T- has TV hurt you that much? You know <laughs> that, that, you that you know it has. has. You know it has. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, that's why like Twelve Monkeys is my red forest <laughs> because I just want to keep is, watching it because it is everything else. Just, it's, it's like when you ask back. that question of like who hurt you, and it's like how long do you have <laughs> to, for me to talk about these fictional stories? That have ruined my entire outlook on the world. <laughs> um, so the fine, just that closing the the for lack of a better word, closing the loop on Cassie's story in this episode is that final scene between her and Shaw, which, based on the jacket she's wearing and the scenes before, that this is like number two Cassie in in the like black trench coat who's having this conversation with Shaw, although the pallid man is not there anymore. So I kind of was like, when exactly is this happening? Um, But it recalls Shaw's kind of like prophetic words of before this day is through, you know, I think you're going to under, I'm paraphrasing, but I think you're going to understand what this means. Um, And, you know, he basically is like, the lines are like, without time's will, without its shackles, um, there is the after the red forest where one never has to choose anything over the ones they love. 
doesn't that sound right to you? And of course, Cassie says, yes, I love how it turns like red in this kind of mm-hmm. um, yeah. really foreboding, really uh, and she's the foreshadowing. Like, and the whole being, you know, religion thing and him preaching mm-hmm. heaven, but is kind of a fallen angel and, and actually tempting her into into out of out of the quote unquote garden of Eden that is life and into corruption, which is believing the red forest and it's red and it's the devil and oh there's so much symbolism in it yeah it's great um it's really really great um so let's just circle back really quickly because the end of this episode is launching us into 1940 de um gail has that phenomenal line where he's looking at cole but he says look who's back from the dead um and then he figures out (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's just like you're like ah it's so good um but you have cole remembering that um the former nazi soldier mentioned the Ananerba, and that rings a bell for you know gail who was working for the fbi um during world war ii and you have this actually kind of what must have been an unbelievable moment for agent gail that everybody but deacon is at the Emerson Hotel in 1966 having a drink with Agent Gale. Like, he's standing across from Jones, who invented time travel. Like, he first started this journey in 1944, and he's, like, finally meeting, like, the person who invented it, right? (laughs) Like, (laughs) um, and you have sort of the, you know, Deglaca and sort of, like, the great, like, I love those lines that are like, do you realize how dangerous this mission is? Like, and you're like, yes, we're going to World War II. Um, I love the send off. Um, if you didn't love Agent Gale as I love Agent Gale, but this is a beautiful character send off that they kind of bring it back to him at the Emerson Hotel like they did um, in the 40s where they splintered away in front of his eyes. Oh, it's perfect. Yes, and everyone goes one by one by one, and it leaves him with Cole, and it kind of breaks your heart that Gail is still offering, like, anything you need, you know, anytime you guys want to drop into my life every freaking decade and you need to save you, like, he's still willing to do it, Um, but then you have sort of the, I sincerely hope I never see you again, and then Cole kind of disappears from the handshake, and then you've got, like, the 1940s music as he strolls through the Emerson lobby with his hat, it is a perfect character send-off. It's just chef's kiss. <laughs> um, do you guys have any other sort of big picture stuff about the episode before we just do a couple rabbit holes? No, I think I think we got through everything. I just, again, I just, I really love this episode and I love, I love the layering of, 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 of overlapping. And I think it is interesting how this episode is kind of like the the one that is the most close to invoking this complete chaos that time travel could invoke, you know, where everyone, like 10 different versions of you, you are like running all over each other, trying to prevent the other one from doing something that they already did. And, you know, it's it's all, they kind of, they don't go super extreme with it. There's only two Cassies, but mm-hmm. it would have been, it would have been interesting to have an episode that was just like massively chaotic with like three three Joneses and like two Deacons and like five Jennifers, <laughs> yeah. like it would just that would have been mad. Like I can't you even love imagine. Jennifer though, right? Being like, are you Cassie one or Cassie yeah. two? And she's like, oh my god, never mind, yeah. whatever. Like, and it was 
it I mean they could have done so much more like along those lines but I do I do really love how they pulled this one off and and my other thought was that after this conversation I just really would have liked some kind of 12 monkeys book where you do that thing where it's like turn to page 12 if you make choose your adventure like a time adventure book like that would have been mad i can't even imagine but it would be so much fun that's a challenge beep you can do that one (laughs) yeah beep can you write that that was like that was like a third grade writing yeah send me some notes i got it (laughs) choose your adventures were so huge when i was a kid i love Um, those yeah, that would be this is like a yeah, I mean ultimately the end of the show is a choose your own adventure. It is. Um but yeah, I mean I, I look everybody loves uh, Lullaby and After are kind of these two like within one episode playing with sort of this like classic time travel trope. Um and you know, I love Lullaby, but I think this is like as close to it comes to a perfect time travel episode of TV. Like, you know, it's a very particular kind of of problem um, of trying to go back to a certain point, like in one day, but it's just, it's so tight. Um, There's so many layers to it just within trying to figure out who is doing what and when within this one particular day. And then when you add on to it, all of the thematic work that they're doing and character work and how it informs, it's informed by what's happened before it informs where we're going. It's just like, it's one of my favorite episodes for sure. Um, Really quickly, a couple fun rabbit holes. Um, The band posters in the alley when Gail is coming after Shaw, um, there's a couple posters on the wall as Gail is coming through the door. Um, one of them is the Jolly Olivers, which is not a real band, but Oliver is the name of the writer of the episode. And then the band underneath it listed is Casey Bada, who is, I believe, a list listed at IMDb, the showrunner's assistant and on the production staff. So there's a couple like behind the scenes shout outs to those band posters. There's also a band named the Dandelions, which the only band I could find in real life is actually a band that's currently active now that does 1960s psychedelic, psychedelic rock, which was kind of like 1966, 1967, when that, when that sort of genre was taking hold. Um, but there's a 19, a song written by the Rolling Stones, um, from called Dandelions and it's interesting when you think about sort of the lyrics of this song and the fact that um let me do the lyrics and then i'll explain it says um it's a rolling stone song from 1966 play the game with every flower you bring dandelions don't tell no lies dandelions will make you wise tell me if she laughs or cries one o'clock two o'clock three o'clock four o'clock chimes dandelions don't care about the time and then there's also a reference to tinker taylor soldier sailors lives like sort of the dandelion has the passage of time has the same effect on everyone Mm. and i think it's kind of interesting in this episode i mean obviously you have sort of the thread that the pallid man is obsessed with botany um as a tool of death (laughs) so as an older man he's sprinkling petals on on his victims but here he's using a dandelion as poison but that poison also that flower forces cole to tell the truth um, he tells the truth both in telling Shaw where the weapon is and also that he would choose Cassie's life over his own. And Tinker Taylor, soldier spy, is a 
is a title of a, a John LaCroix like spy novel. So that was kind of a fun thing. So what they reference at the end of this episode, um, the Ananerba, as Gail explains it, was a like pseudoscience think t- think tank as part of the Third Reich, where this kind of collection of people from different scientific disciplines were obsessed with going like trying to find evidence that of course didn't exist of a master race and they would actually go to different countries looking at thing looking for artifacts looking at like cave paintings and drawings um and it's you know kind of a popular like if you think sort of where it's been depicted in pop culture, like definitely like Raiders of the Lost Ark, where you have the Nazis looking for the Ark of the Covenant. Um, I think if you think of like Captain America First Avenger, you have Hydra as kind of like a fictional version of this, looking for something from Norse mythology with the Tesseract. Um, Deglaka is a real conspiracy theory. Um, so I love that they inserted this line of dialogue, according to Terry Metalis in season one with Jennifer saying, climb the steps, ring the bell. But then they found a real life conspiracy theory to kind of explain what that is. Um, I mean, obviously, like the, the way the actual bell works, we'll see in Demons. But there is a conspiracy theory that's kind of like discredited by actual historians, but that so- some people have written books about that there was a quote unquote wonder weapon, which was the bell, which had sort of untold, like kind of the way they describe it in this episode, anti-gravity, perhaps time travel, but kind of like unknown power um, that is a real conspiracy theory that they have folded into sort of the mythology of the show, which is just like so fun that like it started as this seed in season one and then somebody found kind of like a real tie to it and a great excuse to go back to like do a World War II episode. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? No. I don't think I don't you ever think need an excuse, need an excuse to do a World War II yeah. episode. <laughs> <laughs> so the fact that they have one is just like... And Good the on you. Ultimate one. Like I'm so excited to listen to your uh, your conversation with uh, Terry and Sean. Was it next time? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it'll be it'll be so much fun to listen. Like that's it's iconic beyond iconic. I know, I know, and it's so fun now when you watch it. When mm-hmm. when Jones is like, this could have you know profound consequences for causality. You're like, yeah, because they're gonna fucking blow up Hitler. <laughs> like talk about not being able to change anything. And talk about like a giant f you to being like you know what you were not that consequential. Like, <laughs> I love it. Um, the one little tidbit that it informs this episode that is something that happened kind of we won't see, but when Deacon left with that suitcase or with the briefcase and goes back to Titan, um, when he sees that the bell is a piece of junk. That is what that is why he knows where to go in 1940 to go help them, which I kind of forgotten is that is the missing link between the deacon that we see at the end of this episode and the and deacon showing up in Deglaka. My God, um, like if it could you can you ask them? <laughs> Not yeah, that you what, don't, what you are your questions? To, but <laughs> if like you might already have done so, but if the whole Gale thing, like if it could have been different, if he could have not survived. 
I suppose they would have just found a, a way to make it work anyway. But like how much would have been different? Because he is kind of, it is like a, a pebble that starts an avalanche, isn't it? Like if he wasn't there, then like a million things would not have happened. I mean, Agent Gale is, when you look back on it, like they never would have found Kirshner's lab or the word of the witness. They never would have figured out Daglaka. Cole would probably would be dead. Um, I mean, you've got this whole kind of chicken and egg thing, right? Which is kind of like, well, but well, but but there's a change, right? So what what was the version of these events when Gale was dead? Right, exactly. Like would have would maybe like Jones have gotten back with with Jennifer and she would have been like, ah, I know what that means. Like that might have been a you know what oh my god that was so random but i just remember this is actually so funny is that in towards the beginning of the episode when they're like oh you know who would have who would be able to help us in that situation they were like oh no but he died and then jones and jennifer are just like unless they made a change and like how did they know (laughs) (laughs) like that would never have happened in any other episode (laughs) they would have looked at each other like maybe something changed that we didn't like no that was just funny well who else is quoting hg wells in their you know fbi reports (laughs) i don't know right it it seems like such a leap to take based on like a reference to hg wells i don't know i don't know as a former government staff we're not often quoting you're not writing about time (laughs) machines (laughs) so you know it seems like a needle in a haystack on the other hand you would have been like ah time change there. <laughs> I recognize the it would sign. Be, be evidence, yes. Agent Gale is out there somewhere. <laughs> uh, well, Selena, thank you so much. I love that you got to do this episode Yay, with us. Thank um, you I can't believe we're getting close to the I end. I know. Or the beginning, however you look yeah. at it. <laughs> I was going to say, it's actually called the beginning. Yes. yes. Right. Um, the beginning well, of not being in the red forest. How amazing. <laughs> or. <laughs> so, <laughs> Selena, you worked on a film that's coming out. Do you want to say anything about that? Did I did work on a film. I am uh, began my, my career change um, this year, and I'm very excited uh, about working in film and, and being an assistant producer. And I got to be a, a third AD on a horror film that's coming out this fall. And it's an editing right now, and I've seen it like three times, and it's it's just amazing to see like the process of of editing, like so much changes, and and it's it's just the process is amazing. So it's not like I haven't had anything creatively to do with it, but I've done a lot of practical stuff, and it's been so much fun. And I was on set for three weeks, and I'm excited. I'm I'm really it's, it's it's a Danish horror film that doesn't really happen so it is kind of a first for the the company and for sort of the the film institute that that gave it support so we're all kind of like really excited to see if if this kind of can start a trend of genre film because like Denmark doesn't really do genre we do hmm. noir <laughs> if you've noticed <laughs> <laughs> Call Jennifer she's got you yes. What can you tell us the name of it? Oh yeah, it's called Breeder. Right now, got it. It's, it might change the name. The name is always like TBC, but that's like all the news articles that have come out and stuff have called it Breeder. The English and word do you breeder. know yet? Do you do you know yet if how we'll be able to watch it in the U.S. or or not? I assume it it's it's coming out, out on VOD, but like I don't actually know yet because they haven't figured that out yet. Okay, I thought you guys know. Definitely. That's exciting. Um, Well, thanks again for joining us. All right, guys. 
Our next episode is 406 Diglaka. Oh. Um, Terry, ah, I know. <laughs> I'm going to have to get those all out so that I can, like, <laughs> pretend to not freak out while we're talking about it. Um, and, you know, as we mentioned, Terry Metalis and Shantretta will be back to take us to 1940. Until then, we'll see you soon. <laughs>